episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Harry Fletcher Wood. And, if I do say so myself, it is a bit of a classic. Harry is an amazing guest. But before we get to the interview, big news in the world of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast. It is now possible to sponsor an episode of the show. Yes, I am fast becoming the corporate monster I always feared I would be. To mark this occasion, I have also got some brand new music to introduce the segment. So, all of you who moan about the jazzy music that starts the show will now have something else to moan about. Anyway, let's hear about our first ever sponsor. Here we go! This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is kindly sponsored by AQA, and in particular, their Beautiful Maths campaign. Now, we all know that maths is beautiful. You don't need me to tell you that. But the question is, do our students? Well, I know a fair few of mine look at me like I've lost my flipping mind when I suggest that maths can be beautiful. And yet, they have no trouble whatsoever seeing beauty in a piece of art, a song or a poem. And that just isn't fair. So, that is what this campaign is all about. AQA will be encouraging teachers to share their ideas in the hope that this will widen the scope of what beautiful maths is all about. My favourite source of beauty in maths is often an elegant solution or a result. Indeed, few things make me happier in life than when a complex algebraic fraction simplifies down to something dead simple, or when the solution to a crazy equation with all sorts going on turns out to be one. Life is flipping good when that happens. But of course, there's beauty to be found in lots of other areas of maths as well. Unexpected connections, patterns, geometric designs, sequences, or even my first speed dating question to all my guests on this podcast. What is your favourite number and why? And then, of course, there are mathematical formulae, and AQA have picked out three absolute beauties as part of this campaign. You've got everybody's favourite trigonometric identity, cos squared theta plus sine squared theta equals 1. I love showing that to my year 11s. And then we've got some more advanced ones. e to the power of i theta equals cos theta plus i sine theta. And then, I think this is my all-time favourite, and it's a bit of a cliche, I know, but it's flipping brilliant. e to the power of pi i i plus 1 equals 0. You've got e bombing around, you've got pi bombing around, you've got i bombing around, put them all together and you end up with 0. Absolutely unbelievable. So, how can you get involved in AQA's Beautiful Maths campaign? Well, depending on when you listen to this podcast, you may have time to join in the dedicated Twitter maths chat on Beautiful Maths, taking place in the evening of the 6th of June. And you can check out AQA Maths' Twitter profile for more information on that. Also, keep an eye out for AQA at any of the conferences you may attend this summer. But, perhaps most importantly of all, let's keep thinking about and sharing, both with fellow teachers and our students, examples of what makes the subject we love just as beautiful, indeed, perhaps more beautiful, 
than any other. So, there you have it. Our first ever sponsor segment on the podcast. And indeed, if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of intelligent, engaged, and quite simply, incredible listeners, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And indeed, if you are Apple, Google, or a Caribbean cruise company and you want me to test out any of your products, then definitely get in touch. Anyway, back to my guest, Harry Fletcher Wood. Harry has worked in schools in Japan, India and London, teaching history, organising university applications and leading teacher development. Harry now works at the Institute for Teaching where he is designing a course for teacher educators. He blogs regularly at improvingteaching.co.uk and he is the author of the book Ticked Off, Checklists for Students, Teachers and School Leaders. But Harry also has a brand new book, Responsive Teaching, Cognitive Science and Formative Assessment in Practice. And I have been lucky enough to read it and I can tell you now, it is outstanding. So our conversation was structured around the contents of the book and we took some trips into some fascinating locations, including what was Harry's relationship with maths like at school? What did Harry learn from his favourite failure? What three confusions did Harry hold for much of his teaching career and how did they manifest themselves in his lessons? We discussed knowledge organisers and what are the features of a good one? Why do we need lesson objectives? And again, what separates the good from the bad? How on earth do we promote metacognition in our students? What are the features of a good exit ticket? And how do we stop them simply adding to our workload? Why is Harry just as obsessed as me with hinge or diagnostic questions? And how does he respond to common criticisms of them? And then we discuss marking and feedback. How do we make what we write as teachers as effective as possible? And then how do we ensure our students actually act upon it? How would Harry help a department become a professional learning community so that it feels like a choice instead of being forced? How can teachers develop good habits and actually stick to them? What makes for effective CPD? And what does Harry wish he'd known when he first started teaching that he knows now? This is one of my favourite ever interviews. I have been a huge fan of Harry's work for years. His use of summarising research on Twitter in particular is incredible. And quite a few of my former guests have cited that very thing in their big threes. Talking to Harry was an absolute pleasure and I hope this is an episode that you can share with your non-maths colleagues as all of the ideas Harry discusses are applicable no matter what subject you teach. Indeed, some of the ideas on first glance may appear to be more suited to subjects such as history and English than mathematics, but I do not think that is the case. And it's something that I discuss with Harry and follow up in my takeaway at the end of the interview which also includes my new favourite way to mark and give feedback to students. Obviously, if you buy one book as a result of this episode, make it responsive teaching. But if you're interested in reading about 12 years of maths teaching mistakes, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, available from all good and evil bookstores. And thanks so much to all of you who have bought and reviewed the book. It means the world to me. Anyway, I shall deprive you no longer as I introduce Harry Fletcher Wood. 
Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Harry, so we start as we always do on this podcast with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? So hopefully this won't sound terribly pretentious, um, <laughs> but my my favourite number is the square root of minus one. Nice. Um, and the, the re- so I was um, I'm honoured to even be asked this as a non-maths teacher, <laughs> as someone who gave up maths at 16 and didn't necessarily massively enjoy it then. Uh, and a few years ago, I got back into maths uh, because I taught with the head of maths a unit on the history of maths. So I taught the history of the mathematicians and he taught the maths. And I read this book by Marcus de Sautoy about uh, the Riemann hypothesis. And so the the idea of imaginary numbers just I found absolutely fascinating. This idea of uh, a whole nother dimension of mathematics as it were um, and so that is why that would be my answer that's a, a great answer harry and I'm, I'm always fascinated when we have non-mathematicians um, on the show and even mathematicians actually who who didn't particularly enjoy maths at school uh, when you look back now um, can, can you pinpoint why that was the case or what or what would have what would have made you enjoy it more I, I, it's it's hard to say isn't it I, I think one of the things was i was in the top set but I was very much at the bottom of the top set and there were some really smart people in there. Um, and so I could see them going on and on and I wasn't really necessarily getting it. And so I let myself get lost because it was just like easier. Uh, I, was, I was sat next to a, a guy who ha- was a good mate and had a good sense of humour. And it was just easier to let them keep going and for me to sort of go go at a, a gentle pace. Um, I think also... I, and. It's hard, hard to say what the causes are, but I didn't I just didn't see the the interest and the beauty of it that I've come to appreciate since. Yeah, I don't know if that's very useful for like math teachers out there, but 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 that, that'd be my answer. No, it, it is, Harry. And there's, there's something in that. And it's again, I was lucky enough to interview um, Dylan William uh, last week on, on the show and he just talked about getting that interest from the students and when he if he was looking to hire um, a maths teacher two things he would look for is someone who was genuinely interested in students themselves but also genuinely interested in the mathematics and I think yeah if you have if you have a teacher who's passionate and can convey the passion and the beauty of maths to uh, to their students yeah I think that can that can make a huge difference but it's it's often difficult to do especially kind of last thing on a Friday when whenever you've got exams uh, coming up on the horizon as well um but second question then for you Harry math speed dating um going back to your maths days again did you have a favorite maths topic i think i found simultaneous equations really satisfying <laughs> i've never um, heard that before harry why, why was that? really yeah 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 i mean i love it it was just on. like it was quite pleasing there was a logic to it you started with a thing and then you, you did a few transformations and then you ended up with another thing you ended up with an answer um I, I don't really know but in the same way and now one of the things that's helped get me back into maths now has been learning about euclid and geometry and it's the same thing of like there's a logic to the proofs that that you can start with something and get to something else through a series of logical steps and i i, I like that hey this could be a, another another uh, kind of direction of your career harry back into the maths classroom here i'm sensing this passion coming through well i mean it's you, you've got to be aware that the maths teachers are always in demand in a way that history teachers aren't <laughs> so uh, i could repurpose myself for uh for, for 
contemporary society. It's, it's, it's sounding good. And final speed dating question for you, Harry. If you weren't involved in education at all, what job would you like to do? I think it'd be some combination of being uh, a writer and historian and tour guide and a journalist. And um, those are all things that really appeal to me. I like traveling around. I like knowing what's go- gone and uh, gone on in the past. And I like telling people about it. So I guess I'd be like, a history teacher that wasn't in the classroom, I think, is the answer I'm giving you. Sounds good. Superb. Well, uh, before we dig into uh, the book and teaching in general, can you just give us a, a quick brief overview of your, uh, your career to date, Harry, please? Yeah. So um, after I graduated, I went to Japan uh, and I taught English there for, for a year as an assistant language teacher, which I loved. And that confirmed to me that I wanted to be a teacher uh, and I knew I wanted to come back. But I had a year to fill before I could come back and take up the training that I'd, I'd got a place in. So I went and taught for a year in India. Um, and then I came back to the UK and trained with Teach First and spent four years in a school in Enfield in North London um, and then moved and uh, was part of the founding team that set up a school in Woolwich where I was the head of history and then became the head of CPD as well. And that got me more and more interested in the the research. Like, I was like, why? What are we asking teachers to do, and why are we asking teachers to do it? Um, and so then became for a couple of years a, a, an educational researcher working for Teach First, and then went from there to where I work now, which is the Institute for Teaching. Uh, and the the main thing I do there is I'm responsible for a program for teacher educators. So you sort of head of CPD, assistant head in charge of teaching and learning. Um, how how do you train teachers well? Like what? So a lot of people get promoted into these roles because they've been effective teachers, and then it's like, okay, now train all the other teachers. And you're like, well, actually, you need some of them more kind of support to to do that. So that's what I do now. Fantastic, super. But we'll be digging into kind of effective training and stuff late, later on in the interview. Um, we always kick things off, Harry. And it's it's one of my favourite questions to ask, and, that, and that's to think back to your, your days when you were a regular classroom teacher. And to, to think about a favourite failure, so a, a lesson that you taught that didn't go mm. according to plan, and, and crucially, what did you learn from the experience? Yeah, and this is this is a, a great question, and the, the 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 hardest thing is narrowing down from, <laughs> from all the the possible failures to include, right? But there's a particular one that sticks in my mind. So uh, I'd gone to um, some really great training with Dylan William. Uh, and I'd come back and I was really excited about various things. There were a couple of things that I really wanted to try, which were um, increasing wait time after uh, asking students a question and between students responding so that they could respond more uh, articulately, freely um, and hinge questions, which I imagine we'll come back to later on. Um, and so I decided I've been to this training in, in the winter and it was like January. I'm going to start. I'm going to bring both of these things into my teaching at once. And it was an absolute nightmare (laughs) because it absorbed so much of my concentration. So every time I asked a a question or a student responded, I was literally counting in my head to three or four (laughs) to make sure students were getting this chance to respond properly. And I was simultaneously using these hinge questions and discovering these enormous misconceptions that I just I had no idea they were there previously. And the, the one that sticks in my mind, so I was teaching geography, which I, I did for a year, and we're looking at rivers. Uh, and it, I discover that the kids think that I'm like, where, where does the water come from that's in a river? And the answer that over half of them believed in the class was um, it comes from the sea. Right. And actually, if, you, if you're teaching in Woolwich, 
that makes sense because they it's the tidal Thames. You see the water coming in every day. So that like logically that makes sense. But I was like, how can they how can they think this? And I literally I, t- I poured some water from a, a student's bottle onto a table and I lifted up the table. And I was like, which way is the water? Gonna <laughs> um, and so so the reason why it was uh, a failure, a series of failures is because I couldn't. Well, while I was trying to make all these changes, I couldn't. There was too much going on for me to be able to respond to appropriately. So I was coming across misconceptions and I didn't have a smart way of dealing with them ready i wasn't even really ready to deal with them at all and i was simultaneously like counting like crazy and while i'm counting i'm not really thinking about like what's the best way to take this discussion and i'm realizing that that like what i thought was going to be a five minute activity is taking us 25 minutes and there are kids rolling their eyes because they know that water flows downhill and i've just sort of lost lost any sight of where the lesson's going i guess um so i guess three things that i've learned from that um one is how like even when you're not looking for them there'll be massive misconceptions that some of your students hold so you need to unearth them and plan for them um a second thing is is only try and change one thing in your classroom at a time so i was trying to change two things at once and that meant i didn't have any uh, cognitive capacity left in in which to make sure those changes went well um and the third one is is tell the students the changes that you're making which in in this case I had I'd said like been really upfront these are some things I'm going to be trying to do this is why I'm doing them um I asked the students for their their um reactions to them later on in the term um but I think if they if I hadn't told them they just have thought I was even more crazy than than I imagine they concluded <laughs> that is that is fascinating that Harry and that it it's kind of like it, I mean I've been in this situation myself it, it kind of puts you back in the shoes or the mindset or the experience of a novice teacher back, back in your early teaching days when you're having to concentrate so much on behavior and the questions you ask and all that all the stuff that you kind of take for granted now and noticing when things are going wrong and subtly tweaking it but in the early days that just occupies all your attention and there's no room for anything else and, and I often find this especially when I'm giving training to teachers these days and at the end of it I say to teachers if I was to give you one piece of advice it's to definitely not try all the things that you've learned today yeah. tomorrow in your lesson because for two reasons really one for the exact thing that you've said there that it's just too much it's too much for the teacher it's too much for the kids but also and I don't know if you'd agree with this it also makes it hard for you as a teacher to reflect on what works and what doesn't work because you're chucking too many variables into the mix if you're changing three or four things and at the end of it the lesson goes badly you don't know why and likewise if the lesson goes well you don't know if perhaps it would have gone better if you'd have just focused on one of those things or not so i, I don't know if you'd, you'd agree with that yeah definitely like isolate the variables change one thing at a time because otherwise it'll be it'll be too difficult and you won't know the effect and the other thing is when you try and change several things at once even if it works you quite often find that you revert to what you normally did a few weeks later like it's great (laughs) for a bit and then you realized it was really time or just like something else came up like it was test week and and you weren't able to do it um so i yeah i I do exactly the same thing i get to the end of a training and say like okay what one thing are you going to do and if i'm feeling really ambitious like what what one thing are you going to do now and what thing are you going to like have a look at doing next term or next year to try and encourage people to be really selective because teaching is complicated enough and and if we want to make those changes sustainable we do need to to make it step by step process rather than giant leaps 
Absolutely superb. Right, well, let, let's turn our attention to, to the book, Harry, Responsive Teacher. Now, I've been lucky enough to read this. And again, I don't say this to, to all my guests. It's an absolutely brilliant book, Harry. I've, I've absolutely loved it. So my first question is, and because, again, I don't know if you'd agree with this, there's over the last few years, it's and particularly in the last two years, it's kind of been a bit of a golden era for, for books about education. There's been some absolute corkers that have come out recently. And so what made you want to write this book at this particular time? And, and who's who's the intended audience, Harry? Yeah, great great questions, and I completely agree with you. There's some, there's some fantastic books out there. Um, I think what I felt was that there's a gap between um, the academic side of the evidence and uh, some of what practitioners are writing, um, and that that was a gap that I might be able to fill. So there's there's some really fascinating research papers out there, but those are papers that are quite often hard to access. Um, quite dense, not necessarily that conclusive, though you'll get to the end and you still won't know what you should do uh, tomorrow, period four. Um, and on the flip side, we've, we've, we've got some brilliant blogging going on, um, but it's, it's not always, it doesn't always reach through to like principles that other teachers would be able to use wherever they are, or it doesn't always reach through to the research. And I thought potentially something that that brings those two together might be useful for for teachers um and that was based off having i've been blogging for i guess five years now and whenever i wrote something about uh, formative assessment particularly there always seems to be quite a big appetite for that that kind of writing um so who's it for i, I guess um i know when you do a, a startup or you create something you're never meant to say it's for everyone pick a niche um and in my mind, that was teachers who are probably from between about three to seven years of experience, let's say. So the, the, the classroom settled down, they, they know what they're doing and they just want to push themselves a step further. Um, but what was interesting was so I put up on, on the blog, like, are, are you interested in the book? Um, sign up here and I'll send you a chapter that you can have a look at, which is great because I got loads of people giving me feedback and, and sharing thoughts. Um, but one of the questions I asked people was, um, how how many years you've been teaching and the mean experience of over 200 people signing up was 12 years of teaching and they ranged from from people who weren't in the classroom yet all the way up to 25 30 one person said they've been teaching for 40 years Flip although some heck. of them were were um were after uh, resources that they'd be able to use with teachers who they worked with yes um so so i'm gonna uh, do what everyone says you aren't supposed to do and say it's for everyone <laughs> that's incredible that harry yeah a mean of 12 years flipping heck Jeez. i was i was astonished i wasn't expecting it at all i was expecting to as we always do to confirm my preconceptions but it, it as, as often happens it didn't Jeez, I hope you put that data on like a box and whisker plot or something like that. I hope you did something nice and mathematical with it and not just leave it at a statistic. That is for my next uh, my, my next step in my rediscovering the <laughs> mathematics, let's say. Nice, fantastic. Now, before we dive into the, the specifics of the book, um, I want to ask you a question. That is, it's more from a selfish reason um, because I, I've written a book fairly recently myself and I'm, I'm obsessed with people's writing process. So when you sit down to write the book, Harry, what, what does kind of a, a day of of writing or a period of writing look like do you have any habits routines little treats you give to yourself um so i think that the thing that's helped me most has been the habit and that is writing every morning for half an hour and if i can't write in the morning so i'm going off to visit a school first thing like as soon as i can at the end of the day i'll do that that half hour of writing um and the nice thing about that is it's it's short enough to really be able to concentrate but long enough to at least have something worth worth have, having put pen to paper on 
um, by the end of it. Um, beyond that, it, it's so I, I write really badly and then I edit <laughs> really heavily. Um, so I just I, I, I'll be going along and I'll, oh, add that in, put that in. And so if you look at a, a, a document halfway through the writing program process, it's a complete mess. Um, but what I then do is just keep going over it again and again and again. So I actually finished the, the draft in June um, in, in the first the, the first version uh, and the hand in date was November and that was intentional. I spent four or five months and completely rewrote it. So some of the chapters completely transformed as I got feedback or just thought about it a bit more and, and was like, actually, that's not what I mean. That's not right. People would send me papers or examples and be like, what, why isn't that in there? Um, so it's my, I'd say my secret is not writing, but rewriting. That's nice. So you're not editing as you go. You just kind of bang it all down. And then what is it kind of, would you, so for, um, if you wrote something for half an hour in the morning, would you not look at that till the following day or might, might you have a glance through later on in the day and do an edit or, or do you kind of take some distance away from it? If that makes sense. I try, I try and create distance, but over periods of weeks and months. So I might ah. spend a week focusing on a, on a particular section uh, and, and rewrite it and rewrite it. And then I'd be like, okay, that's done. Move on to another section. And then two, three weeks, a month later, um, come back to it. And the nice thing about, you know, when you leave it long enough, you, you start to see the errors in your own work. Yes. Fantastic. Super. Well, well, let's, let's dive into the book here, Harry. And I love, um, there's lots about the book I like, but I, I really like the start where you, you kind of tell us where you, where you're coming from here in, in the kind of structure of these three confusions that you've had. So I wonder just to kind of start our delve into your book, if you could just, just tell us about these three confusions. And what I'm interested in is, is kind of where they came from, but perhaps more importantly, what did it actually look like in the classroom when you had these confusions, if that makes sense? So I think your first one is that assessments seem to hinder learning. Yeah. And so I I was a massive skeptic about assessment. I just thought assessment was was a bad thing. And that was because what I was experiencing as a new, very naive, not fairly ignorant teacher was um, a lot of what I was spending my time doing didn't seem to be helping my students learn anything, didn't seem to be providing me with any useful information. So every um, half term we were doing a summative assessment that we had to, we'd spend a lesson or two preparing for it and doing it. And um, it wasn't necessarily tied to what we'd just been teaching. And then I'd mark it and students wouldn't have done any better. And I'd find out that like, lo and behold, yeah, they, like, they're not very good at this thing that I've, I've not yet taught them. And then we'd spend a huge amount of time um, delving into the sub level you know why send someone a 3a plus when they could, should be on a 4c minus and again i could look at it and be like well i'll tell you why it was they're away or yes uh, and so I, I realized that the level structure wasn't providing any information and just wasn't really related to how you get better at history that's interesting that and i think again it's it's certainly not something that, that's specifically tied to history that harry that that's going across all subjects and yeah i've, I've certainly been gu guilty of that one or, or had that confusion and um, your, your second one that you say and this this is a big one and again i was lucky to speak to dylan about this and it seems very much kind of in vogue or on trend at the moment skills seemed more important than knowledge what, what do you mean by that harry um i think i mean various things at once so the 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 iteration of the curriculum that I was starting off under the, the 2007-2008 one pr prioritised uh, skills over knowledge. And I've had people since say, oh, no, 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 it didn't. But the way I viewed it and the way I think it was written, 
it really did. So I thought what I was teaching my students was how to argue about the causes of events, for example, or why different events are significant. And I didn't think that the uh, the detail of the events themselves was particularly useful or valuable. Um, and that's because the, the level structure would reward writing an essay about um, the causes of the English Civil War in exactly the same way it would reward writing an essay about the causes of the First World War. So right. you could get to a, a 6A for either of them. And if you didn't know about the, the causes of World War One, you could still hit a 6A. Um, and so both the system, but also the, the beliefs that I come into teaching with were like, well, it doesn't really matter what students know, because what I'm teaching them are skills that will be useful. Uh, it'll be like they're able to analyze things and come up with a coherent argument. Um, and I think those things are, are really valuable. But I think the issue that we have is that they the, the, you can't think without knowledge. And that's a, a really obvious point. But that skills don't transfer unless you have the knowledge that's required. And a couple of examples that always stick with me. Um, if you're a really good chess player uh, and you then try and play a different strategic game, like the game of Go, this Korean game, same idea, black and white squares, pieces, strategy, but you won't be really distinguishably better than a novice Go player. Um, and likewise, uh, something that Matthew Syed talks about, um, Matthew Syed, a uh, table tennis was a sort of world-class table tennis player, became a sports journalist. He's facing Roger Federer as part of a sort of, <laughs> I don't know, uh, some sort of demonstration. Um, and Federer's laughing at him, saying, well, you, you can't respond to a ball moving 100 miles an hour. And so I was like, well, I know that I can, because I used to do it as a world-class table tennis player. But actually, the, the skill of playing table tennis does not transfer to playing tennis. Um, and that, so this was a thing that I'd completely underestimated, the, the importance of... Um, ensuring my students were acquiring factual knowledge and then able to do interesting and useful things with it. And I'll tell you what interests me about that, Harry, because you read a lot of the literature on this kind of skills versus knowledge, and it seems to be focused kind of across domains. So the ability to kind of critically evaluate an argument in English doesn't transfer to be able to do the same thing in history or geography. But I think what you're talking about, and certainly what, what I find in maths, is it's even within our own relatively narrow domain of history or maths or whatever subject it is, still those skills don't necessarily transfer across unless you've got the knowledge. So as, as a mathematician, um, people, I used to try and get my kids to be good problem solvers, and I used to do lessons on problem solving in maths. And I would think that if I taught, took my kids through a problem that had certain kind of features to it, the next time they encountered something similar with those features they'd be able to solve it themselves but it wouldn't transfer across and it used to absolutely do my head in but it's because i believe now that they lack the knowledge the the problem solving skills are inherently tied to the specific domain that that specific knowledge and you can't acquire those skills and um, kind of deeply embed them without that knowledge and i think it's really really tied to a narrow domain w would you agree on that yeah, definitely. And I think one of the most useful distinctions that uh, I find when looking at education is this distinction between how novices learn and how experts learn. So when we look at problem solving, we're quite often looking at experts and saying, well, an expert can look at a problem and know what to do immediately just by assessing the problem. Yes. So we'll teach our students how to assess the problem. And what we're losing sight of there is an expert can do it because they've been looking at and thinking about these kind of problems solving these kind of problems for years decades even um and what we're now trying to do is is teach these sort of cosmetic features of how experts behave without giving uh, our students 
the knowledge structures that enable experts to behave like that absolutely perfect and um final one of these confusions harry and this is obviously right up my street and a lot of our listeners is that assessment for learning was just a bunch of techniques so what, what do you mean by that so i think it's probably easiest if i just give you one example uh again potentially an obvious one but mini whiteboards so in the box in my lesson plan uh, what's your afl for this lesson i'm going to use mini whiteboards. (laughs) right okay what are you going to use them for and what i would use them for like well i know my students are more willing to write on a mini whiteboard um it's sort of it seems less permanent more more fluid so i'll get them to write their answer to this question on mini whiteboard and ask them all to hold it up and you could probably picture the scene i've got 25 students all holding up you know potentially a paragraph of writing or something <laughs> maybe haven't written anything at all and so i what i can't do is assess what they've written in the time and their arms are going to get tired if they're holding up for the time it takes to read all of these paragraphs so it's sort of mini whiteboards for the sake of writing not for the sake of me learning from that and responding to student learning Got it. Uh, Absolutely. And we'll we'll dig into kind of more effective, uh, proper assessment for learning uh, later on. That's superb, that, Harry. Um, I want to now turn to what you describe as six endemic problems. And I think you use uh, Doug Lemov's um, kind of definition of of what these problems are. Um, And if I just quote here, they're predictable, inevitable and intrinsic challenges in teaching. And what I thought we'd do is um, instead of kind of just going through each one in great, great detail, I just want to pick out some things that, that I just found particularly interesting. Um, in them and then hopefully that'll provide a nice teaser for people to go out and buy the book and and learn a lot more so the first endemic problem that you look at is about planning a unit and you say how can we plan a unit when we want students to learn so much and have so little time now the bit that really interested me about this harry was knowledge organizers because again they are all over Twitter. People are chatting them left, right and centre. They're finding their way into maths, uh, maths classrooms. Michaela have been kind of a, a leading light in this. So, but from my kind of limited um, knowledge of this, there's lots of differences across the examples I've seen. So I wonder, do you have any guiding principles about what knowledge organisers should look like? And, and crucially, how, once we get them looking right, how, how can they be used most effectively? Yeah, I definitely wouldn't say I'm the expert on this. And I've, I've benefited from lots of the examples that have been shown. Um, but I think there's a, a big distinction between writing down some things student you want students to know on a piece of paper and actually organising the knowledge into a structure that's going to help students to take it in. So I think that the first question I'd invite a teacher to think about is, what is the logical structure of this knowledge? So in history, one logical structure is is the chronology. So one thing that you might quite often see is uh, the, the the dates and the events that are happening. Another logical structure is is seeing it as a drama of characters. So another thing that you might see on a knowledge organizer is um, is who's on it. Um, and I, I think that structure will uh, vary depending on what subject you're teaching but i think thinking thinking of what are, what are the ways that you want students to be able to access this again as is helpful and then organizing it in in that format um also what what visual aids can you uh, provide so in history geography it might be a map um in science it might be a diagram and so on um remind me of the, the second part of the question so once we've got them once we've got it looking right um, how do we actually use them effectively harry I th- this is one of the things that I find um, 
really interesting is that there are so many different ways you can use them. So to start with, it's a really useful exercise for the teacher to make sure that they've got the knowledge. Like clearly, if you've been teaching the course for years, it's going to be there. And you could probably write the knowledge organizer in about half an hour. But if you're new to a topic, it's probably a really good exercise for you to work out what are the things that you want students to remember, take away yes. with, with, with them. Um, and at that point, I think the, the, the world's your oyster. And there are loads of things that you can do very quickly with them so one of the obvious ones is delete half of what's on there so if, if we go back to the history one we've got all the dates delete all the events like okay 10 minutes fill in um, all the events that should be on here or delete all the dates here are the events what are the dates that they happened that kind of thing so it's really useful to as a resource for students to test themselves to revise with um and then potentially uh, Toby French, who's a brilliant uh, history teacher, talks about, well, actually, use it to hold yourself to account. Like, what are the main ideas from this that each lesson is about? If it's not, if a lesson doesn't have some of this as its core content, then either the knowledge organiser needs a bit of work or potentially the lesson needs a bit of work. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I was lucky enough to go to a, a session at the most recent maths conference, um, LaSalle Maths Conference, and it was on knowledge organisers. And Danny Quinn, um, head of maths at Michaela and former guest on this show, and her colleague were, were sharing their knowledge organisers. And one thing that really struck me, um, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Harry, is that they, they have to be laid out in a way that lends themselves well to, to students being able to self-test and, and peer test each other. And if, if just from the structure, like they showed some, some uh, pages from knowledge organizers on the screen that looked really good. But the, it was so impractical to kind of cover up the knowledge that you were trying to yeah. remember that it just kind of defeated the object. Whereas just a simple thing of having the fact on one half of the page and the answer on the other half of the page so you could literally fold over the page or cover it up with your book just made it so much more effective, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and so I, I think it's that's a really helpful example to show how knowledge organisers are. They're not the solution. They're one part of a big puzzle. And another part of that big puzzle of supporting student learning is teaching our students to study effectively. And yes. we know that getting them to do um, low states quizzing, retrieval testing on a regular basis is really productive. So uh, exactly designing knowledge organisers with that in mind, um, I think, is, is really powerful. A fantastic school that I love visiting, Dixon's Trinity Academy. Uh, in Bradford have that students have a book of knowledge organizers and so anytime there's a cover lesson for example that's your go-to so they get lots of practice in working with using these uh, knowledge organizers so then when we say okay now's your time to revise independently they know what they're doing yeah, that's really nice. And again, it, it, as you say, it feeds into effective revision habits. So they're not just highlighting or just glancing over notes. It's self-quizzing and peer quizzing and so on. Now, that, that's, that's superb advice, Harry. Um, let's move on to the second endemic problem, because it could all be kicking off here, because this is a biggie, this. Um, you, you asked the question, how can we plan a lesson when we want students to learn so much and have so little time? Um, it's a massive question, Harry. The, the, the first thing I want to ask you here, because you, you dig into lesson objectives. It's a big part of this chapter. So my first question for you is, is why are lesson objectives important? Well, I mean, it's, that's almost a hard question to answer, right? Because it, it, I think it's easier to answer with the counterfactual. Like, what happens if you don't have a lesson objective? Uh, and years ago, I came across a, a paper that advocated teaching without specific objectives. And the idea was, like, just go in there and see what will happen. <laughs> and I don't like I think that's wonderful if you've got all the time in the world maybe you're a one-to-one -one tutor um, and you see if you go into things like early years settings it is possible for a skilled teacher to do that really well and see students 
discover stuff for themselves. But actually, as, as classroom teachers, we've got a limited amount of time to do a really challenging set of things. And historians are in a tough position because in some cases they might only have 60 hours at key stage three before students give up history entirely to teach like the whole of world history <laughs> put three historians in a room and ask them to like debate what are the things that should go into 60 hours they'll, pro they'll come near to coming to blows because we get really passionate <laughs> about what the most important thing is um and so i find it hard to believe that that it can ever be like uh, acceptable worthwhile productive i don't think we can ever go into a lesson without a clear idea of what we want students to do in that time because there just isn't enough time for us to play those kind of games yeah i, I think i agree with you there and i think it, it gets muddled up doesn't it because i think certainly for a lot of my career lesson objectives for me were the thing that i had to write down and the kids had to copy down into their books and that was just how lessons started and it it almost, I don't know if you agree with this, but it almost has kind of a bit of a negative connotation, certainly in my mind, the idea of a lesson objective. It just seems to me it, kind of like a hoop jumping exercise, something I have to do because of school policy or because it's believed that Ofsted wants it. And it's only whenever now I've had a chance to kind of take a step back and really think through my planning that I realise that if you don't know what your overall aim is when you walk into a lesson, you're fighting a losing battle to begin with, if, if that makes sense. And maybe the term lesson objectives are a mistake here, right, on, on my part. It's because I, I, I don't care about lesson objectives as such. What I care about is the teacher's got an idea of where they're going and where yes. they want their students to get. You can call those lesson objectives. They're actually, uh, as I talk about in the book and men, many, many people have pointed out, often the lesson is the wrong unit anyway. And we should be looking at unit objectives. But, you know, do, do you have a sense of direction, a meaningful direction that you're going in, I guess, is the, the key idea. And I'll tell you what interested me as well, Harry, and this comes on to my second question about this, is that it's all well and good having lesson objectives, but they're actually there's um, kind of differences between the usefulness of, of lesson objectives. So I wonder if you could perhaps give an, an example of a less helpful or less useful, if that's the right phrase, lesson objective and then a better one and just explain the difference between the two, if that's OK. Yeah, so I, th I think we can quite often get hung up on um the verbs that we're using, I definitely was for, for quite a long time. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to follow Bloom's taxonomy. So so I'm going to have a, a, a describe, then an explain, then an evaluate. Um, so all students will be able to describe such and such. Some students will be to, able to explain why such and such. Um, and I think what, what I came to the conclusion of in writing the book was actually we need to look at cognitive load theory and we need to look at how complicated the thing that they're working on is and that's a lot more productive than um looking at uh, the, the verbs that we're using so if we're asking students to uh, you know like memorize something quite simple or, or to understand something quite simple the the fact that um potassium uh, the symbol for potassium is k uh then then that's that's a very simple level lesson objective and actually if you're asking them to make a reaction balance a chemical reaction balance then that it has in terms of cognitive load theory higher element interactivity it involves them thinking about more moving parts at any given time and so that's going to be a harder lesson objective for them to to work towards i see so you're thinking and it's interesting this isn't it you you're kind of thinking 
in terms of lesson objectives, in terms of complexity, would, would that be right? And you're kind of framing it in terms of cognitive load theory. And would it be the case that, to take your examples there, would the, the former lesson objective, you wouldn't be saying that that's a, a bad lesson objective, it's just a more simple, less cognitively demanding one. Would, would, would that be right? This is p- potassium is K. Yes. As, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like that. If, if you don't know that if every time you see a chemical reaction, you have to go back to periodic table and check what's what, that's going to cause you a nightmare. Um, so, so that's definitely an objective that's worth having. But it, then we also want students to be able to um, do more interesting things with that. And I think that's something if you if you come in saying, well, knowledge really matters. Sometimes people get the wrong end of the stick and they say, well, do you mean that you never want students to be thinking critically? And so I'm like, no, I don't, definitely want them to be thinking critically. I want them to be able to look at a reaction like written down and be like, that's a really bad idea or that won't work because X. That's thinking critically. Right. Um but to do that, they need to have the, the base knowledge that to, to apply. Got it. Got it. Well, uh, that brings us nicely on to cognitive load theory, Harry. And that's something that's it has been a recurring theme on, on this podcast. And, and I'm obsessed about it. And I know it gets a lot of attention um, on Twitter and, and in discussions. But one thing that you kind of focus on is a, is actually planning to increase germane cognitive load. So we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about uh, reducing extraneous cognitive load, redundancy effects, split attention effects, all this kind of thing. But it really interested me, your focus on on planning to increase germane cognitive load. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. And crucially, and this is the thing I find the hardest, how do we balance this desire to increase germane cognitive load with the risk that that then tips our students over into a state of cognitive overload where there's potential that that no learning takes place? Yeah, and I think the last thing you said there is a really good place to jump off because when we hear about cognitive load, the, the the immediate go-to could be well i want to minimize cognitive load yes, from yes. my students and that's true in as much as we don't want them to be confused so if we've got a worksheet that's just a mess and they're having to spend time puzzle out what we mean or what the the goals of the activity are that's not going to help them learn anything that's just them being confused so we want to arrive that avoid that but it's also being aware that um other forms of cognitive load may be able to help them so this is this germane cognitive load uh, idea um, and it's based on this idea that um, learning and performance are, are different so what's happening within a, a lesson is very different from what I might remember I might be performing brilliantly during the lesson and then forget everything because actually the lesson was a little bit too easy for me so in some uh, there, are, there are some ways whereby we might make the lesson a little bit harder and then that will increase the likelihood that I remember something. So one uh, way that seems really powerful is varying practice. So to, to look at in mathematical terms, um, if you just ask students to find the areas of 20 different um, squares, they're not like, they're going to be on autopilot by the time they get to number three. Right. Yes. But if you ask them to do square, triangle, rectangle um, circle, then each time they do it, they're having to think quite a lot harder. Like, which formula do I need to use for a triangle? How is that different from a square? What what formula should I use for this shape? What is this shape? Um, and so through doing that, although they're, they're likely to make more mistakes initially, but they're going to be thinking harder about the meaning of what they're doing. So they're likely to do better later on. Um, I guess the thing that I'd add is um, uh, Peps McRae, my colleague, who you've also had on your podcast, um, he, he said to me a couple of times, well, I don't think germane cognitive load exists. 
Um, and it's it's always worth remembering that cognitive load theory is still uh, quite new. Lots of research around it still going on, although I, th I think what I've read suggests it's really robust. Um, so if you don't like the idea of cognitive load, uh, germane cognitive load, you can look at it as this idea of desirable difficulties, um, which is, is the same thing, but has a different slightly different research tradition around it. Yeah, I think you're right, Harry. And I don't know if this is going to make sense what I'm going to say. I haven't really thought this through in my head, but I'm just going to chuck it out there and hopefully you can make some sense of it here. Um, I think the example that you gave there, the maths one, is a really, really good one because that is going to feel difficult to students. So constantly having to switch between different formula for, for areas of different shapes. And that is going to cause students to struggle. And as you say, it's going to cause some students to make mistakes. But I believe in a useful way. Whereas if you, uh, obviously a, a non-useful form of struggle would be if you're just making that, as you say, the worksheet more complicated and, and there's redundant information and so on. But I think there's another type of struggle that also isn't as useful. And that's where, to take your example there of the, of the area um, things in mathematics, if you were to um, embed the need to work out the area of a triangle within some complex problem where there's actually, it's, it's one step in, seven or eight potential steps to get to the answer and students aren't secure in their individual knowledge of each of the individual steps along the way then I think that is when that struggle struggle can be counterproductive because you'll get kids trying to think oh god how do I work out the A of a triangle and then they've got to think right okay I think I've got my head around that now where have I gone in this problem where have I got to go to how on earth do I get to the end of this now I've got something else I don't understand at the end of that they can be confused and on the face of it a kid a Attempting an unstructured problem like that is struggling and a kid attempting the worksheet example that you've you outlined just before is struggling but I think the latter is learning more from it because it's kind of isolated skills so if a kid is struggling in one particular place we can figure out where it is and correct it whereas if they're struggling as part of an unstructured multi-step problem then it's a lot harder to pinpoint where they're going wrong and help them Do, does does that make any sense yeah and you, you advocate in this this in your book and i was nodding all throughout the section as with like all throughout the book um, and it ties really nicely to to the idea of deliberate practice of you focus on a particular um aspect of a skill and you focus on improving that and if you're a, a world-class athlete you don't try and get better at everything at once you take an hour or a day or however long it is and you work with your coach on like just your forehand stroke because if you're changing around and trying to um uh, play a play a game play live you don't have um the ability to focus on the specific improvements that you're trying to make so i think this is something we we have to help our students to do don't ask them to get better at everything at once help them to focus like in this lesson we are just going to focus on getting in getting better at x and i think the other thing that ties with this is is the idea of um so so there's this idea that overlearning can be productive so you may be doing something quite well uh, but it, it can still be productive to keep practicing. That will make you get better. Uh, and I read a really nice paper that um, someone called Heather Fern, a history educator, sent me recently, which talks about, well, actually, overlearning is measurable. And what we're aiming for is fluency, because, again, the thing that the expert is able to do is the simple things fluently. So they, they, they've got cognitive capacity to do more complicated things. Um, so we want to give our students the chance to build up fluency in individual subskills. So then when we put them into the difficult situation, the, the live performance, they're able to respond fluently to that. Absolutely. Yeah, you're spot on there. Well, certainly my opinion, Harry. And I think the point you made early on is 
that if you take the example that you gave just before you mentioned um, the worksheet with the different shapes is if it, if kids aren't having to think hard if they're literally just doing 20 shapes that are all the same then they're probably not they may be developing a little bit of fluency in a specific area but because they're not having to think hard they're not not going to be learning as much whereas it's just getting that balance just right isn't it it's just giving them enough difficulty and enough variation to make them have to think hard but without giving them just too much where they can't then make connections between things and crucially us as educators can't help them pinpoint exactly where they need help and um, does that make sense before we move on yeah i definitely agree and and i'll just just add one thing i think some people find the idea of um research informed practice evidence informed practice a bit um potentially alarming this idea that like a researcher is going to tell you what to do <laughs> yes. and i think the example that you've just given is a really good example of why you'll never be able to dispense with the skilled teacher because it's only the person in the room who knows those students who's going to be able to judge like does does so need to be pushed a little bit harder and does so need a little bit more scaffolding right now and those answers will be different for all 25 children in in the classroom every second of the day um so so yeah like learn the cognitive load theory try and apply it but then you know it's it's up to individual teachers to make that work absolutely fantastic well let, let's move on to endemic problem number three harry and th this is a biggie as well at the moment and that's how how can we show students what success looks like and the question i want to ask you here is is there's a, a phrase in you in the book where you say knowing what success looks like promotes metacognition and motivation now metacognition is again very much a bit of a buzzword at the moment it's it ranks really high on the um, eef's toolkit so I'm particularly interested both in metacognition and motivation in in terms of what's your view of the practical, effective ways that a teacher can help promote this and, and, and get students really reflecting on their own work and getting them motivated to want to learn and do better. Yeah. So this chapter, I said that I'd done all this rewriting and editing as the bit book went on. And this was one of two chapters that I just completely pulled apart deleted most of what i've written <laughs> and rewrote um, and that's because the first the first draft was all like oh you should share lesson objectives with your students because that was something that i'd been brought up to do and i put a lot of time and effort into finding better ways to share the objectives with my students and what i realized belatedly and um, partly because daisy christadulu pushed me on this is total waste of time like students <laughs> knowing in words that the objective is to evaluate the causes of the English Civil War. It doesn't help them evaluate the cause of the English Civil War at all. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of nice to have a vague idea where things are going, but knowing those words isn't going to help them. But sharing models is incredibly powerful and specifically not just sharing one model, but sharing several models so students can confirm um, uh, can can compare them and identify what is it that makes something really good what's the difference between average and really great um, and one of the things I found most interesting and it's it's stuff that you refer to in your book as well is this finding that actually um, potentially the, the teachers the, the teachers explanation doesn't add very much to this just providing students with these models and then helping them to engage with them is the thing that's really really powerful so to link that back to the idea of metacognition, I think just like so, so metacognition is generally broken down into two bits. There's the self-monitoring, so knowing how you're doing and then doing something about that, acting in response. Yes. So if, if you think of the analogy of you're, you're um, in a car on a bike and you're going somewhere like self-monitoring is, are you going in the right direction? And then ch changing the wheel to make sure that you head 
wherever it is that you want to go. So the models, looking at these models, is what provides students with this sense of where it is we're trying to help them get. And so then it's it's a process of comparing the model with where they are now. And that might be as, as just as simple as like, look at the model, look at what you've written, spot the difference. Or look at the model, look at this not very good model that I've written for you. What's the difference between them? And then, what you know, how how would we fix that? And there's a load of great ways that we can do that. You know, you, you might be up on the board, up at the board, or with a visualizer, and just saying, what's the next step? And asking students to debate, like, what's the what's the next number that we should put into this sum? What's the next operation we should go through? What should the next sentence be? Um, and I think that 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 capacity to for students to recognize what they're working on how they can improve it that's going to prove motivating particularly when they then like see their work improving they like they realize i've got agency over this i can make this better yeah absolutely and i'm i'm, I'm going to make a confession here at this stage harry that as, as a maths teacher and i don't think i'm alone in this with maths teachers sometimes we can we, we get kind of generic training or, or we read things that that aren't written from a maths perspective and whenever i see things like um, kind of model answers to essay questions or stuff like that I think oh yeah that, that's great but how's that going to apply to me as a maths teacher but what I particularly loved about this bit in your book um, was the bit you included from and I hope I'm saying his name right from Michael Pershing and he, he comes back again later on um, in another section of the book but he described he's a maths teacher from the US and he describes about how um, he, he models to students what proof good good examples of forming mathematical proof looks like and it really got me thinking this because as a maths teacher, it's quite limited how I can show a, what a good way to expand a bracket is and what a bad way to expand a bracket is. I can show a right way and a wrong way, but you're either kind of right or wrong in some areas of maths. But there's definitely ways of approaching problems and ways of proof is a, a good example of this, but ways of approaching four and five mark problems which whilst they may be equally right, one is certainly better than another in terms of how mm. well it's structured, the, the way it's written, the order and so on. So I think there's a danger, certainly for me as a, a kind of blinkered maths teacher, that we can kind of close our eyes to this kind of stuff and think this doesn't apply to us. But showing what students, showing what success looks like, not just in terms of right or wrong, but in terms of kind of degrees of rightness, if, if that's the right way to say it, I think goes across subjects and in particular maths. I, again, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think in, in in many things that you try and teach students to do, whatever the subject is, there's there might be like a, an acceptable way of doing it and then like a brilliant way a more yes. elegant way and one of the things i think teachers really struggle to do is break down what is it that makes a piece of writing beautiful what is it that makes a proof elegant and it's the difference between doing things in in a workaday way and saying well actually you know is there a way we could cut out this line entirely uh in in, in writing and likewise in maths so yeah definitely i think um giving students this range of examples. Don't just show them what a good example is. Um, show them good, show them average, show them the process of taking one one to another. Absolutely, superb. Right, right, Harry, we're on to endemic problem number four, and it's all going to be kicking off now because we've got some biggies kind of in the home yeah. straight here. So 
The next one is how can we tell what students have learned in a lesson? Now, I want to focus um, in particularly on the end of a lesson in, in this thing. So <laughs> I remember it must have been about four or five years ago. The big thing to do was these Twitter reflections, kind of gimmicky ends of lessons. So Twitter was big. So inevitably, when something comes big outside of the world of the classroom, there's, there's this desire to bring it into the classroom because by definition, it's going to be motivating and engaging to students. So Twitter reflections were all the rage. And um, the idea was there, write down what you've learned um, in 140 characters and kids were doing hashtag maths is great and all this kind of stuff. I was never I was never convinced. But that's not an isolated case. There's lots of these what I would call kind of gimmicky end of end, ways to end lessons and ways to get kids to reflect on, on learning. What's your thoughts on them, Harry? Like, where do they go wrong? Um, I think they go wrong in 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 two ways. Um, so, uh, like you, I, I well, may, maybe less wisely than you. Um, the thing that really stands out to me was I'd be teaching like various bits of history that had politics in them, and it was just at the stage that um, news websites like the BBC were starting to put up like live streams. So I went in, I was like, write a live stream for for like <laughs> Hitler coming to power, or whatever it was. Um, and the first problem was. Yeah, sure. I was on the new, the BBC website looking at the politics live stream. None of the kids were. They had no <laughs> idea what I was talking about. Um, and so I was creating a significant amount of extraneous cognitive load because I was asking them to take something they understood and transform it into something they didn't understand that had nothing to do with the content. So, yes. uh, so you know, like that doesn't prove in itself that gimmicky and, and potentially engaging ways are bad but if you are going to go down that path make sure it's stuff that isn't going to confuse the students but the second thing is i'd say don't go down that path anyway because the whole reason why we were um picking a really clear lesson objective was to shape the lesson around that and so we want to know whether students have met that goal um and actually like it may there are loads of things students might come out of a lesson thinking and one of the beautiful things about teaching is it might be some throwaway comment uh that that like was just a tiny bit of wisdom has a huge impact and they remember years later however hopefully we've gone into the lesson with a really clear goal so our exit ticket or whatever it is should tell us whether or not we've achieved that goal and so the problem with if the if the question is quite vague if it's like what did you learn this lesson well like could be i learned that i shouldn't sit next to jamal because he's always annoying <laughs> that like that's on one level that's quite interesting right like the a student has made a wise decision that if they act on might help them to study better however it doesn't tell me if they've learned what i want them to learn for this lesson and so it doesn't help me to to teach responsibly Absolutely. So you, you mentioned there a method that, that you prefer. And again, it, it's one that, that's very popular and it's it's kind of been prevalent throughout throughout my career. And that's exit tickets. But again, I see these used in lots of different ways and I see them looking quite different. So I'm interested in your take, Harry. Um, so first question is, is for you, what are the features of a good exit ticket? Um, yeah, so I think that the single most important thing is that it's shaped really tightly around what the lesson's focus is. Um, but then with that, I want it to be something that students can complete swiftly and I can look at swiftly. Um, so again, this is why having a really tight question is helpful because in my ideal world, we're getting an exit ticket from every single lesson and I'm looking at them before the next lesson. So if students are writing an unfocused paragraph or answering half a dozen maths problems, that's gonna be prohibitively long for me to respond to. So really tight focus 
fairly unambiguous and then i think you've got to play tunes on how open is it because we do want students to be getting better at taking an open question and writing a focused response yeah and i'll tell you what what kind of got me thinking about this is there's and again i I, this is kind of a bit of a stream of conscious um harry so hopefully this makes some kind of sense that I think there's um, one one change I made in my teaching was I realized that I had to be a bit more flexible in the lesson. So I used to be very much tied to a lesson plan that, that if I'd said, I, especially if I was being observed in my earlier years, if I would said I was going to do something, I was going to do it. If I'd said something was going to take 10 minutes, it didn't matter whether the kids got it or not. After 10 minutes, we were moving on to the next activity and it was terrible. So then later on, I became a lot more flexible. But the, when I got thinking about these exit tickets, I don't think you need to be flexible with these exit tickets, if this makes sense. So I'll I'll try and explain what I mean by that. If I planned an exit ticket in advance and my lesson objective was to do a particular thing, and for whatever reason, we go above and beyond that within the lesson, I think it's still quite a nice idea to use that same exit ticket at the end for for two reasons, really. Um, One, it was your original lesson objective, so it's good to measure success against that. Well, three reasons, actually. Two, you've got it prepared, and hopefully you've put a bit of thought into it, so you're not kind of winging a question or making it up on the fly. And, and thirdly, a mistake I used to make early on in my career, and I don't know if this rings true with you, Harry, is that I used to ask my hardest question at the end of the lesson. It used to be kind of building up to this big climax. And I don't think that's necessarily a good idea anymore because um, the end of the lesson for me should be about kind of assessing, as you say, the main the main objective within the lesson. It shouldn't be asking a bit of a stinker that only two or three questions can get right and everyone else leaves, leaves the lesson feeling a bit crap. So I like to stick to that exit ticket that I've pre-planned, even though I'm, I, I'm going to be flexible within how the rest of the lesson pans out. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Uh, I think the, the, the only thing I'd add is to say... Um, it's important that we hold ourselves to account for what's happened in the lesson and actually nailing down in advance. This is what I want students to learn. And then seeing whether or not they've learned it is a really good way for us to then to, to, to have something to hold up. It's like a mirror, isn't it? To be like, yes. Did you actually teach that well, that lesson? And it's a good way of forcing yourself to think about, well, OK, so we went off and we had this 20 minute discussion about something that wasn't related to to the immediate purpose of the lesson sometimes that's definitely the right thing to do but sometimes definitely i as a teacher would allow the discussion for one to wander off and maybe that wasn't the best use of my students time and so i think having having some tool like that and forcing myself as well to know whether every student is able to answer it well because again it can be quite easy sometimes to be like oh you know so and so didn't get it but they very rarely get it and, yes. and I think sometimes we can let ourselves slip into that kind of like it's been a long day. Actually, everyone behaved well. The lesson kind of felt like it was all right. We're, <laughs> we're just going to let this one slide. And that's like I, I totally get that. I've done that hundreds of times myself. But ultimately, it's often the same kids who, who like slip through the crack in our lesson and someone else's lesson. So it's really useful to have something that prevents us from doing that. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing about exit tickets is that, and this, I'll be honest, I'll confess here, this is this is why I don't use them every single lesson. It's because they take flipping ages to mark, Harry, and especially if you're teaching kind of five lessons a day or whatever, and you have 25 kids in there, that's potentially 125 exit tickets to look through and mark. But when I'm reading your book, I absolutely love this idea of divide, dig, decide. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's it's 
this is exactly the issue that I'm, I'm trying to address here, right? Is is I'm I'm advocating something, and people are marking enough, right? I'm not yes. trying to. Then one of the things that I say at the start of the book is like, if any of these things add to your workload, like that's that's really not the goal. The goal is to make life easier, and maybe that'll mean you free up a bit of time. Maybe it just means you can go home earlier. Um, and so I'm trying to look like what's the most efficient way of doing these. And I think the, the start point is literally you've got your 25 sheets of paper, books, whatever it is, divide them up. Like who got it? Who uh, sort of halfway there? And who definitely didn't get it? Um, and often by the time you've done that, like I, th- I think 95% of student responses will, will fit into those buckets. And by the time you've done that, you may be halfway to your, your next lesson plan already, because if everyone didn't get it, then you're going to have to reteach it. Right. Um, yes. But then this dig point is like, OK, where where did things go wrong? Um, so and, and maybe the the the, um, the middle pile, the sort of nah, pile of the most interesting ones here, because it's likely they may be hanging on to a misconception or there's a bit of an R explanation that hasn't quite quite worked. Um, and then so so we can come to a decision to, that, OK, eight students have got it. We want some kind of potentially extension task, something that's going to push them further. Or do they need a bit more consolidation? Eight, nine students nah, somewhere in the middle. Are we going to group them up together? Are we going to explain to everyone and ask the students who got it to, to model ideas for us? Um, and then those students who, who haven't got it, what's what's the action going to be? Are we going to sit around the table with them halfway through the lesson uh, and so on? And I think if we follow that process, I mean, the, my, my rule of thumb is I should be able to look at a class worth of exit tickets and come to a decision within 15 minutes max. Um, I mean, it should, should be less, ideally, um, which means that I can get through my five classes in a day in, in slightly over an hour. And that's also you've also done half your planning for the next lesson. Right. Um, so so by the time you've done that, say, actually, it's not as onerous as it maybe sounds. No, that's that's good, that Harry. And we're, we're we're about to come on to the beauty of of hinge questions or diagnostic questions. But just just to kind of tee us up for that, um, I'm a great believer in in actually using di- diagnostic questions or hinge questions for exit tickets because I find they're very quick to mark, and especially if you then give students the opportunity to explain why they think the the right answer is right or go further. Why do you think each of the wrong answers are wrong, or what mistake would a student be making if they were getting each of the wrong answers? I just find that they kind of tick all the boxes for a really effective exit ticket for me, as opposed to, and there's nothing wrong with this, just saying to kids solve this equation or, or increase this amount by this percentage or whatever. Um, would that would that be something you'd agree with? And would that be something that would transfer across to something like history? Would you use hinge questions for exit tickets? It's not something I've ever done, but probably because I never thought of it. Um, I think it it. it probably is a good idea i guess in history i'm keen for them to be doing some practice writing every day and i think there's there's an importance to them getting used to articulating the the key idea from the lesson but so i think what you're describing about about potentially a hinge question plus a written answer is is probably a really good compromise so you've got an immediate check of whether whether or not they've got it and they're still getting a bit of that that writing practice in uh, interestingly i'm just working with um some people in the program that i run uh on doing something like this for teachers so if you're teaching the science of learning um, what does the exit ticket look like and i think that group have, have come to a conclusion that it's it's what you describe it's a hinge question plus an explanation for the answer to the hinge question or an explanation for how they might apply it in their lesson and so you get those those two ele- elements at once 
Got it. Superb. Well, we can we can wait no longer, Harry. We, we need to talk hinge questions. Here. I don't know how I've, I don't know how I've gone an hour. We're, we're holding it in here. So, uh, endemic problem number five you describe is how can we tell what students are thinking? And I think it's fair to say you're as obsessed, or if if not more obsessed, with with, with the power and potential um, effectiveness of hinge questions or diagnostic questions as I am. Now we discuss these a lot on the podcast, um, mainly because I just bring it up every single episode. And but I wonder why are they important for you? And and crucially, do you have any tips about how to either write effective hinge questions or or use effective hinge questions within a lesson yeah so i think what they what i've always dreamed of is having that real time second by second understanding of what students are thinking um, and so I experimented quite a lot uh, with things like coloured cups and coloured cups get a really bad rap. But actually, I trained my students up to use them and they were really useful for just getting a sense of whether or not students um, understanding is wavering, their confidence is wavering. But the problem with coloured cups is so that, you know, like you change from green if you're happy to amber if you're a bit unsure to red, you're losing it completely, um, is that they only give you uh, students self-confidence. And what we know from a lot of the work in uh, behavioural psychology and cognitive psychology is often we're not brilliant judges of how much we've understood. And even if we are good judges, we may not want to tell all our peers that we don't get it. It's, yes. it's embarrassing. Right. And so a hinge question um, sort of forces the issue in a sense. And instead of getting a subjective sense of do my students think they understand, it gives me an immediate sense of do they understand Yes or no. It's unambiguous. If they don't understand, I'm going to know. Um, and so that's that's, I think, why they're why they're so fantastic and such a powerful tool um, in terms of tips for writing them. I think one of the one of the things that really makes it life easier is to start with the misconceptions that you expect students to hold. And write the question around that. If you start with the like a question and a right answer, then you're like scrabbling. What else might they think? <laughs> yes, um, yes. And that's why, you know, we see loads of bad multiple choice questions out there. I think that's why they get a bad rap, because you've, you've got the right answer. And you're like, oh, you know, like I'll put down a silly answer and then like yes. here. And, and that isn't going to tell you very much. Um, so start with the misconceptions and then I think just just turn them into a, a, a sentence or a sentence them and then come up with a question that uh, that helps answer to them. The other thing that I found really helpful that I came across while while researching for the book is um, it seems like generally more than three potential answers to a multiple choice question don't don't add anything. So unless so you want a correct answer and two plausible misconceptions. If there's a third plausible misconception, throw that in. But don't feel like you need four or five or six answers, because by the time you got to six, you've probably got a couple in there that students aren't even going to consider. They're obviously wrong. And so that definitely makes life easier because you just like I just I just need two misconceptions, a correct answer, and then a question that fits them. That's really nice. And um, one kind of line I took from the book, and I've, I've used this probably about six times since Harry, and I always give you full credit for it, is um, about assessing content, not confidence. I think that's a really nice way of kind of summarizing what we're trying to do with the, with these diagnostic questions. So can I ask just before we go into a slightly more controversial area um, with them, how do you actually use them mainly in, in a lesson? Do you use technology? Is it kind of fingers, one for A, two for B, three for C? What What's your process for actually asking? And, and getting back information on these questions so try and follow what what dylan william uh, says advocates 
Um, and I'm trying to make sure that, that we're looking at no more than 30 seconds, maybe a minute at a push for students to read it and be ready to give give me the answer. And it's really important to do this in, in a coordinated way. So uh, I want everyone to put their hands up on three, two, one, because obviously if students are putting their answers up early, there's an incentive for other people to copy them. Um, used to use mini whiteboards. I'd say now I'd rather use fingers just because your fingers are already there. It's easy um, and are quite visible. I think it's also helpful if you're uh, giving, make, just making it crystal clear what you're after. So um, how high you want students' hands to, to be held. And that might sound a little bit dictatorial. But actually, if you don't say, well, I want your hand roughly around head height, you're going to have a couple of shy people with their hands going to be somewhere around by their knee. And you're going to have <laughs> other people that are sort of waving it around in front of your face. So the, the whole point is to get a sense of the whole classes um understanding so being specific about that timing it and then i think the other thing is is if you've predicted the misconceptions you can predict things that you might want to do in response to the misconceptions and that reduces the amount of thinking you have to do right in the middle of the lesson absolutely i think yeah plan for error i think is as doug lamb of terms to terms yeah. it. i really like that um right because i've got you here harry we, we've got to do a couple of the controversies of, of hinge questions because Sometimes I find myself, whenever I talk to teachers, um, as soon as they see a multiple choice question, they're kind of, uh, I'm fighting a losing battle to begin with, because as you say, they have a bad name. And, and sometimes they have a bad name for the reason you've outlined, because they are bad questions. It's, it's easy to, um, to, to spot what the right answer is, because the distractors are, are just so terrible. But I think that there's, um, there's some kind of more fundamental issues um, that, that teachers have with them. And one of them... And this is a really interesting one, this. I hear from teachers that they're worried that exposing kids to misconceptions that are, by definition, included in the three wrong answers is actually uh, quite dangerous. And it may actually lead to them um, kind of having these misconceptions where they weren't there present before. So whenever you expose kids to questions where three of the answers are wrong, actually it can lead to them developing misconceptions. Is this something you worry about? And, and what would be your response to a teacher who had that concern? I totally get why it's a concern. I don't worry about it because I came across quite a rich vein of evidence where they've spent a lot of time using them in universities um, and uh, they have a particular structure they use whereby they show the question. They then divide students up into um, small groups and ask them to debate and they then uh, ask the question again. And one of the things that they were able de to demonstrate is that uh, almost invariably, when you ask the second question, more students give you the correct answer than the first question, uh, than the first time you ask it. And so it's it's like a reassuring sense that actually the truth will tend to out uh, if you give the students the chance to, to think it through. I think the other thing I'd say is usually if it's a misconception that you think is likely or that your colleagues think is likely, a lot of students probably hold it or probably yes. half hold it. And so you're better off getting it out in the open because then you can go through the process of, ah, you know, like we can see why it wouldn't be X because such and such. Um, whereas if you leave it like bury it, if you don't expose it, it's, it's just sort of bumping along in the bottom of students' brains and it's never <laughs> going to go. So it's like grab the ball by the horns go for it would be what i'd say but but feel reassured that honestly that the, the truth will out that sounds good and final final one on this harry is there a concern and i must admit I, i've had this myself that 
sometimes misconceptions can get lost if they're not included in one of the two or three wrong answers. Whereas if you ask a non-multiple choice question where students are free to answer however they want, sure, it's harder to collect the data in, but at least every misconception is going to be revealed because students aren't constrained by the number of wrong answers that they can choose from, if that makes sense. So is, is that a worry for you? I mean, possibly. It's it's. <laughs> It's possible that other misconceptions will emerge, but I also feel it's potentially quite unlikely because you, if, if you don't know what they are, are you going to spot them lurking underneath students' answers would, would, would be what I'd ask there. Um, sorry, mental blank. Um, <laughs> Just, just, well, just whilst you're thinking that, the, the, the thing I say, and I don't know whether this is good advice or, or bad advice, I sometimes say to kids, and it only works with some classes if the culture's right, I'll say, is there any other, after we've done the discussion and stuff, is yeah. there any other wrong answer you were thinking of? Or if you were to rewrite this question, yeah. would, there be a, would there be a better wrong answer that you would put? And it doesn't work with all classes, but that's sometimes a way to kind of unearth hidden misconceptions, if, they, if that makes sense. That's, yeah, that's really nice. I've not heard that before that's that's really nice i think the other thing i'd say is 90 95 percent of misconceptions are predictable and they're yes. fairly immutable so uh, one of the ones that i i find really interesting is um is a physics one it's like why do objects sink and they, obviously they sink because they're heavy right but apparently <laughs> yeah. they don't they sink because they're dense and so this is something that that we have a naive explanation of as as children and we have to learn academic physics to realize that it's not true because a baby will be able to say that like oh that looks like it'll sink um and it's quite you have to be quite sophisticated to understand why a super tanker doesn't sink um that misconception is literally never, ever going to go away. And the same is the case for, for almost everything. Now, in history, every now and then there'll be a new one crop up. Right. So there'll be a new film and there'll be like some completely fictionalized version of history. So we'll get <laughs> two, three years. There'll be students streaming in being, like, oh, yeah, I've heard about him. This is what he did. Um, but most misconceptions are, are, are pretty set. And I think if we get better at sharing them, collecting them together, we should be able to predict most of them would be my answer yeah i think you're right and it, i always say a kind of a good question or a good hinge question is a good question for life like it's yeah. not going to get outdated or anything so yeah no i'm, I'm with you there harry and um, all right well let, let's move on to another biggie they don't get any smaller these issues so the next one is is how can we help every student improve now the the first one of the early points you make in this i think is a really really important one and it's quite counterintuitive you say the first piece of advice for teachers looking to improve their use of feedback is don't start with feedback so what, what do you mean by that so i think if you start with feedback you're, you're potentially starting quite a long way downstream from from what it is that you might need to get right so if if you're looking at feedback often the reason is well students aren't producing the quality of work that we want them to be producing fine but there's a series of other questions you might want to fix before you get to the feedback so the first one is um are students working on a worthwhile task so working backwards from feedback like is the work bad because it's bad or is it because actually you didn't set up the question quite right to elicit what it is they've understood if you set up the question well did students already see a model or a series of models that's going to show them how to answer it well? Or do you want to give them better models in order to understand um, what it is, just as we were talking about earlier? Um, do you have a clear goal for what's happening in the class? And is this based on 
uh, a curriculum that's really well sequenced and taking students forward. So I think quite often what looks like a feedback problem may actually be a problem that we just need to show students a couple of a couple of models and help them deconstruct what a good answer looks like. And the feedback problem will disappear and a lot of workload will disappear, too. Absolutely. No, that, that's very sound advice, Harry, because, uh, yeah, as we know, marking and, and the workload that's associated with, with it, it's one of the worst parts of being a teacher. It's one of the key reasons teachers leave the profession. And what, what amazes me, and uh, Dylan Willing was the first person to draw my attention to this. And that, so I'll be sat there on a Sunday and I'll be marking for five or six hours and I'll be I'll be really, really fed up. But in the back of my head, I'll be thinking, well, at least this is worthwhile. At least the hours I'm putting in are going to have a brilliant effect on my kids. So I think that kind of gets me gets yeah. me through the pain. But then I was speaking to Dylan the first time he was on the show and he drew, drew my attention to the research that suggests that flipping feedback can have a negative effect on student outcomes. And I was like, what is going on here? So firstly, did, and that blew my mind, Harry. So first, did. Did that surprise you whenever you learned that, that, that some feedback is actually bad for learning? And my, my second question is, how do we make sure we're given the kind of right kind of feedback? What, what, what feedback can, is, is probably going to lead to positive outcomes and what feedback is going to lead to negative outcomes? Yeah, as you say, the questions have got harder and harder, haven't they? Um, <laughs> I, I don't remember it particularly shocking me, uh, but, but the more I think about it now, the more it shocks me. And the thing that particularly shocks me about it is, these are from these are the results of academic studies. So it's not like a, 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 like, let's say, a new teacher with the best of intentions just gave yes. bad feedback. These are like academics who've sat down and, and like read the research and be like, what is the best feedback we could give and then tested it. And then it's had a neg negative effect, which is that that's the bit that really, really gets me. Um, so, you know, what what's the solution to this? I don't know. I think. The, I, I advocate in the book, among other things, like less is more. And I think one of the doesn't explain the negative results of feedback. But I think there is an issue of an opportunity cost that if you spend um, three hours on a Wednesday afternoon marking books, that's three hours that you could also have spent planning or let's say an hour looking at exit tickets and then two hours coming up with good ways to respond to them. Um, and I think another thing that comes through in, in terms of things not to do is is um, potentially if if you uh if the result of what you offer is demotivating students perceive it as controlling if it becomes ego involving so they start worrying about comparing themselves to one another um that's that's potentially uh quite quite problematic and this question is probably an impossible one harry but i'm just going to chuck it at you, you anyway let, let, let's say that you're you're sat there on a sunday and you've taken in your year 11 history books and you've got a stack of 25 of them and they've all written an essay and for whatever reason you've only got an hour you've got one hour to mark feedback whatever that's all you've got what will be the most effective use of that time what, what, what would you do so I, I, let's go back to cognitive load theory and this idea of keeping things really simple, right? And so I I don't think students can get better at several things at once. And so what I'm going to be looking to do is is to focus individual students and maybe the whole group on, on possibly only a single action. And um, so I might I might be trawling through and I might focus on just the introduction or just paragraph one, or I might ask students to, to select one paragraph for me to look at that they particularly want me to look at. And out of that, I'm going to be looking for like, what's the highest leverage change that's really going to help them to to uh, 
um, get better at this. And so this is back to this idea of have you got curriculum? Have you got clear goals? And to me, if, if we're looking at history essays, there's a sequence that you go through to plan and write a history essay. So if you don't have a clear sense of what each paragraph's about, the, the middle sentences aren't particularly going to add up to help that paragraph. So I'm not going to worry if, if the opening sentence is vague. I'm not even going to worry about the middle sentences. I'm just going to say, look, we're going to do a 15 minute exercise on what makes a good opening sentence. And then we're going to do some practice and rewriting um, the starts of paragraphs. Now, obviously, the, in a real class, it's just chaos because everyone's got something slightly different. But I'm trying to look for similarities or like areas that a lot of people are going to benefit from going over. And the other thing to say then is is um, keeping the marking really spare. Like if I'm writing the same thing loads of times, that's a really poor use of my time. So potentially don't write it at all and just say it to them or say it to them and ask them to write it down. Or I may give the example of, of the word evidence, right? You, you can't do history without evidence. So every single essay that I've ever marked, I've probably written the word evidence on there. So evidence <laughs> becomes the letters EV. And every time students see EV, that means evidence. And that's going to save me. Like It doesn't sound like much, but over hundreds of essays, oh, yeah. hours, it's, it's really going to add up. Um, I also got really into like traffic light marking of just saying, you know, like here's three colours. Each colour leads you to a different next task. So it's always thinking about what's the next step? What's the change that's going to happen? How's that change manageable? And then what's the marking that's going to achieve it rather than like I'm going to write loads of things in this book because students aren't going to respond to it. So so don't write loads of things. No, that, that's really good advice. And, and again, when, I, when I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, but is this applicable to maths? And because, and again, I'll draw the same distinction. If I'm just got a set of books where it's kind of a easy, an exercise where it's really easy for me to mark and they've either got it right or wrong. And it's very quickly for me, very quick for me to see that. I'll just go through it. Fine. No problem at all. But whenever I'm marking past exams or more kind of problem solving, multi-step, less structured questions, I draw parallels to your marking process whenever you're going through you're going through history essays. And I just wonder one thing I've started doing, and I think this was a mistake and I'm, I'm fuming that it took me so long to, to cotton on to this, is I would just start pick up a, a book at random or an exam paper at random and I just start marking and then I get the second book and I just mark away. By the time I got to the fifth or sixth book, that's when I'm starting to spot patterns. And that's when I realize I'm writing the same flipping thing over and over again. And then actually I'm probably best just stopping what I'm doing and actually mm. reteaching that particular thing. So I just wonder, do you, um, if you were marking, would you kind of, before you dive in with the marking, would you have kind of a glance over everything for five or 10 minutes just to try and get a feel of it? Or is the value in just diving in and, and cracking on? No, I think, I think you're totally right. I think this, this like start, look at the first five, work out what the big problems are likely to be and then shape it around that. And as you say, it, it, it might be that you just conclude you, you're not going to mark any of them because yes. they're, they're not ready to be marked um there might be students just need to go back and like edit the work carefully themselves and i think that's that's absolutely fine and that none of this is to preclude like you're always going to have let's say two or three students in in a class who need an individual response so you yes. might have someone who just seems to be years ahead of their peers and so maybe they'll get like an individual careful handwritten response every time because that's what's going to help them push push on you might also have someone who's really struggling who you're going to write their own little sentence frame for them um but most students are going to fall in fall into these big buckets 
Got it. And I guess the other kind of side of the coin here, Harry, is that we, we can we can write the best feedback in the world as teachers and we can reduce our, our workload and so on. But but it's only effective if, if kids get a lot out of it in, in the actual classroom. And I've been I've been terrible at this. So we, we have a thing um, at our school and in fact, in the previous school I worked in. Uh, called mad time and in some schools it's called dirt time and the idea here is that it's it's kind of dedicated in time dedicated time in lessons for students to look over the feedback and respond to it and in the past i've had to arm them with a let me get it right i think it was a green pen they were writing in at one yeah. point and then i was remarking it in a purple pen and all this and the thing was the irony i found was that the more feedback, and in my head, the better the feedback I gave. So the more comprehensive kind of scaffolding and all this feedback that I gave, the less the kids had to think because I'd kind of done all the work for them. They're just kind of filling in the gaps. But then the kind of converse to that, if I didn't give kind of enough feedback, the kids were like, well, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do here. And, and nothing was done there. So I found those those lessons where kids were reflecting on feedback really frustrating and not often. I didn't often get a lot of value out of them. I, I didn't feel the kids got a lot of value out of them. So I just wonder, Harry, do you have any advice about actually getting kids to act effectively on the feedback that you've given as a teacher? Yeah, so I think the, the first, I, th I think that's a really common problem. And you, you write this really careful, thoughtful feedback. And then you discover like the kids can't read your writing. That, like literally, <laughs> they're like, oh, I can't read this. I can't do anything with it. Um, so yeah, I think that the first thing is, is like, do students understand your, your feedback? And that's why, one of these reasons why I try to keep the feedback really sparse, partly because it does me a favour, but also you're doing them a favour. Like if you can put it in five words or a sentence, that's going to be easier for students to, to understand. And there's plenty of evidence that people are more likely to act on briefer feedback. Um, and then, yeah, making sure you're really clear about what you're guiding students to do, what you want them to do. So if you want them to, to rewrite it, redo it, like making sure that the modules that maybe you introduced three lessons ago are back and available and making sure that you're super clear about uh, what the task is that you want them to, to um, act on. And then making sure there's some kind of check on that. And I, I, I'm not trying to su suggest just sort of triple impact marking because we know that there's there's no good evidence suggesting that it works and i think the idea of marking the same piece of work again and again until you're sick of it it isn't particularly <laughs> productive but equally if students know that you're never going to look at it again some of them might be tempted to to slack off right so while they're improving work maybe you're going to be wandering around and just seeing to make sure they're on the right track maybe your last like two or three students to come and talk taught you through their book each time but making sure there's something like that that helps them uh know that that someone cares that they improve it but also means you are getting feedback on whether or not your feedback works yeah that, that that's great advice harry um, and fa final question on on this feedback section and because th this confused me this um when I first came across this. So I got a bit obsessed with, with Bjork's Desirable Difficulties um, about a year ago, 18 months ago. And it's one of the last ones given. And, and that's the, the kind of benefits of delaying feedback, of kind of withholding feedback for, from students to, to improve learning. So I've got that in my head. Okay, delaying feedback's a good thing. But then I read all the deliberate practice literature and that's all about immediate feedback because if you're practicing something wrong and you don't know it's wrong, it can just lead to you rehearsing wrong things and leading to mistakes and misconceptions. So how do we strike the balance, Harry? Is there a time to delay feedback and is there a time to give immediate feedback and, and how on earth do we know as teachers? 
probably yes how do we know really <laughs> tough this this is a really interesting one so so about 10 months ago i was trying to crack this myself because I, the, the, the same thing had baffled me for ages right and so i tried to come up with a decision tree which is a technique that i stole from medicine where you just go through and it's like yes no uh, and it's a way to sort of aid your thinking so i come up with this decision tree and i put it on twitter and a load of people get back to me and and so on and i, I evolved it through several attempts and the group of people who remained most uncomfortable with most people by the end of it like, yeah it sounds, it sounds fair enough and maths teachers really seem to struggle with it um, <laughs> and i think it is because they 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 do more of that immediate practicing so they can uh, they can see why it's an issue so the the thing that i think i'd say to maths teachers in about this is sure you don't want students to encode errors but sometimes if we're practicing for fluency you don't necessarily need to go back like students might self-correct and so you can think of like a times if, if you've got them doing the sort of times table rock stars or equivalent they might just fire through and they might get a couple of ones wrong but it might not be worth going back if you're if you're trying to think get them processing quickly that error might disappear next time to go back then to your bigger question um what I came up with was a series of scenarios in which you might want to delay uh, feedback. So, like, how difficult is the task? If the task isn't that uh, hard, you might want to delay feedback because the students may not have been thinking that that hard about it. They may not need immediate support. Um, alternatively, if if you know that students are baffled, if they're totally lost, like, there's no point in being, I'm going to delay feedback on this. You might want to give them that help straight away. If the task provides feedback, so potentially you might have them on um, some sort of uh, computer program or if they're able to obtain feedback for themselves uh, by checking the correct answer, you might want to delay feedback because actually if you give them the feedback, then they're not thinking that hard about it. Whereas if they see the error and they're forced to work it out for themselves, that's going to be better for them and that's going to turn them into more autonomous learners. Um I still think it's a bit of a mess. I'm doing my best to, to try and work it out. And I've, I've tried to hack through it in the book, but I expect that's one I'm going to have to change over time. That's good. No, I like, I like that one. That's a superb answer, Harry. Um, we'll, we'll move on now because we, we have a lot of um, heads of department listening to listen to this podcast, predominantly maths um, heads of department, but also other subjects. And I had a question on Twitter from Jason Steele, and I think it's an absolutely great question. <laughs> I'd love to know the answer myself, so I thought, I thought I'd ask you this. And Jason says, what suggestion would Harry have for moving a department into being a professional learning community so that it feels like a choice and not forced? Because I think that's a, it's a big issue, isn't it? Because we there's a movement to get teachers kind of research engaged and using these effective practices and so on. But also, we all, we know teachers are busy. We know workload's an issue. So, so how do we make it so they actually want to do this? It's it's tough, isn't it? Um, I th I think I start from the position that like all teachers, ninety nine point nine nine percent of teachers want to get better, and so if you can offer them something in that department time or whenever it is and show them the value like show them why it might be useful to them they're like like they're likely to buy in they're likely to to see value in it and so i think if you are that head of department or professional development designer like how within the opening five minutes are you going to connect it to their experience to like link in with a problem that they think is a problem show that you've got some kind of credibility that actually like you're not just a charlatan selling a very expensive <laughs> package um are, are, are all issues that you're going to want to think about and then specifically to this you know like making it feel like a choice 
I think it's this really tough position where if you are the head of the department or the expert for whatever reason, you need to offer some guidance, same as being a teacher, right? You want students to make decisions for themselves, but you're not just going to let them loose in the room. So potentially, if you're offering a menu, like here are three or four things that uh, seem to be characteristics of effective departments or effective uh, professional learning communities, or here are three or four things that I think we think might be worth working on. Um, that's a good start. And then letting teachers choose within them. Um, and then I think also thinking about like a lot of the ways that we can help improve teaching are really fun things that we appreciate. So Danny Quinn, who you've had on the podcast, I think she used to start her department meetings, may still do with them um, with a maths problem. So they'd all spend like 15 minutes working together on a maths problem, which clearly has a, a, a pedagogical focus in terms of like how are our students going to struggle uh, with with this? Are we all up to speed with our curriculum knowledge? But it's also really fun. And I think any any department can find things like that that teachers will enjoy that they'll also get value from. And then I think the last thing is is tying it to things that are going to prove useful. So anytime I'm I'm running training, I'll quite often like if if we're going to be working on something, it'll be like bring a lesson, bring a unit of work that you're going to be doing soon, and we'll apply what we're working on to that. And so hopefully, if the teacher walks out with like the next lesson planned. Like, oh, I thought that was going to be a bit of a waste of time, but actually, yes. it's pretty useful. And then you're like, well, not only are you a better teacher, but you've also got your lesson plans. You're away. That's nice. That's that's really really good advice. I, I like that, Harry. And and final question from from Jason. And I've kind of adapted this a bit. And we've touched upon this a little bit, but but Jason asked, how can we create habits in teaching which have a positive outcome on students? And the reason I wanted to include this is we mentioned what I think is a really important point earlier on in our conversation that if you try to do too much and change too much too soon, then it becomes overwhelming both for you as the teacher and for your students. You can't identify what works and what doesn't. Work work but I certainly know from just aspects outside of um, outside of school like I'm trying to get into park run trying to get up every Saturday mm. to do this park run and it is could not be less of a habit at the moment if anything it's making me sleep in even more <laughs> on a Saturday and I read some things like in in your book and I'm Tom Sherrington's coming on the podcast next and I read some of these wonderful things I think right I'm going to do these and for whatever reason, it doesn't become a habit. And I, I'm like this whenever I find something that I really like. I find it, I, I go mental at it for the first couple of weeks. And then for whatever reason, it kind of slips away. And hopefully I'm not alone with this problem. So how can we create these habits, Harry? Do you have any advice on that? It's it's a great question. And, and sneak preview, this is going to be the next book, right, is, is behavioral psychology for teachers. Because I think behavioral psychology as a field has a lot to offer us. We are behavioral psychologists like every day in the classroom um and so being aware of what the research suggests might be helpful i think the first thing is is just becoming fully aware uh, of what our existing habits are so looking at teaching as a habit like if you ask questions you stand at the same place in a classroom day after day and do the same things that becomes a habit like it or not and that that's a good thing because if if you're in a habit you're freeing up brain space to think about more complicated things so if you always get your students to come into the classroom in a separate way you've then got a spare attention to concentrate on like who looks like they're upset today what am i going to need to do to, to help them get settled um so becoming awareness of our becoming aware of our existing habits first thing and then thinking about well if i if i want to 
change an existing habit or adopt a new one what's the trigger what's the cue going to be so I talked earlier about this idea of wait time so what is the cue for me to remind myself to give longer wait time to students so potentially every time i want to do something in in the classroom i might put a little icon in the corner of a powerpoint that's like just might be a little triangle it students don't even need to know what it is right but when i see it that's my reminder to do something um another thing i think is incredibly powerful is is practice i'm a huge advocate of deliberate practice in in teacher training and teacher education so if i want to do something different in the classroom the first time i try it shouldn't be in the classroom if you were a surgeon or a pilot there's no way you'd do that so like <laughs> get together with a coach or a peer be like i need to change i want to change the way i'm doing my questioning can you i just want to like ask you a few questions can you like can i do that and can you give me feedback um potentially holding ourselves accountable so if we if we invite someone in maybe just a colleague like it doesn't need to be scary but like can a peer come in in two weeks time and give you their impressions of it and that's another way to make sure that we actually do it and then the last thing is is um is to expect to fail right is is like we know that adopting new habits is incredibly hard and so when we do relapse for want of another word into whatever the old habit was like that doesn't mean that the new thing isn't a good idea. It doesn't mean we can't do it. We just need to look again at what the triggers and the cues are and work out how we can give ourselves more, more help, more support. Like, are there other people who we can we can help? We can ask for help. Can we ask the students to remind us if we miss it? That kind of thing that just makes it easier to habituate for ourselves. That's great advice, particularly involving the students there, Harry. And again, that's just something not just related to habits, but related to quite a few things that we've talked about today. A lot of the new practices that I brought in over the last few years, I've told the students exactly what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it. And I think that just helps both in the adoption of habits, but also just helps students feel more a part of it. And especially with some of the things um, like the desirable difficulties that are inevitably going to lead to a dip in performance. If you can kind of warn the students about this, but say we're doing this because in the long term it's going to be better for you and so on. It just helps things go a bit smoother. Would you would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Cool. Fantastic. Right, Harry, final three things. We're on to re reflections now. Um, but again, just to warn you, there's some biggies here. Um, first one here is you've obviously read loads of research. And um, um, one of the things that kind of first drew me to, to your attention is I love what you do on Twitter with the way that you summarize research and you put it kind of as part of a thread. And they're absolutely kind of essential reading. And you, you hook people in, you take a little screenshot of a bit of, bit of a research paper and then summarize that bit or your key takeaway from that and then next bit of the thread is another screenshot and you summarize that i think it's an absolutely brilliant way to to give teachers accessible quick quick ways into research so with all the hundreds if not thousands of papers that, that you've read and, and research findings that you've come across is there any that stand out as being particularly significant in the way that they've influenced either your thinking or your approach to teaching any kind of game changes for you harry I think it's it, it's Daniel Willingham's book, Why Don't Students Like School? And that, like that's that's kind of cheating, right? Because that incorporates <laughs> no, loads not. of things. And so maybe to to, to pick a particular one, um, it's the paper Skill in Chess uh, by by Simon and Chase. Um, and this is basically the discovery that knowledge is the basis of skill. Um, do, do, I mean, do, do you want me to talk a little bit about what what they do in the paper and yeah Why? please yeah, so, it's one of my faves so please do yeah oh cool. okay so um 
they look at they look at the fact that a, a novice and an expert can process a chessboard really differently. Um, so I can show an expert, which is say a chess master, a, a chessboard, an image of a chessboard for like handful of seconds take the image away and they'll be able to reconstruct that chessboard uh like put all the pieces in the same position they were but if i show a novice someone who's not not that good at chess uh this this same um uh image they're gonna struggle they'll probably get like five six pieces in the right place however if i show the novice and the expert game pieces at random so they're not in the middle of a game situation then their performance is going to be pretty similar so it's not that an expert chess player has this amazing visual memory so what is it that explains this and what they come down to to identifying is that a chess player has an expert chess player has memorized um hundreds and thousands of combinations so when they look at a board they don't see individual pieces they potentially see like lines of force lines of uh, opportunity um patterns of pieces uh, all together so they're not seeing like just a rook or just a queen they're seeing a rook and how that's threatened by a queen and how the queen's protected by a bishop and so on so that's how they're able to to memorize it what's really profound about this to me is is well to them and to me uh, is this idea that when we look at what skill is um we, we look at the chess player and we're like oh they're so skillful they're so strategic they're so bold but but all of those are basically just uh facets of that chess player's knowledge and their fluency in applying that knowledge and so i think that's really profound both in terms of novice expert distinction and in terms of uh of how we learn how we can become better at things and just to play devil's advocate for one sec, because what, what, I've had teachers say, say this to me, what, what do you say when people say, oh, that's all well and good, but that's chess. In the real world of the classroom, what on earth is that? What relevance has that got? What's your reply to that? Well, the, 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 this was the start, right? So this was the first the first time that this was really uh, demonstrated. But since then, the same process has been applied in loads of different fields. The work of Anders Ericsson is really interesting in this and like looking at how deliberate practice applies in, in lots of different fields. Uh, and, and like no one's no one's proved the converse. And they, I'm, I'm totally open to it. Like five years ago, I didn't believe almost anything that I've said to you on the podcast. Right. So <laughs> yes. if the evidence comes along, point it in my direction. Uh, I can't like the the best summary I found of this is from 1989. It's like all of this is true. But, you know, maybe there's still something to it. And you're like, well, maybe there is something to maybe there are transferable skills out there. But unless and until we find that that they're a thing, I'm going to keep treating this 1973 paper as as, as gospel okay <laughs> superb um i, w- I was very fortunate to um firstly I've, I've seen you talk live in the flesh but i also i, I came across um the wonderful talk you gave at research ed sweden uh, recently about why good cpd fails and i'm going to place a link to the to the talk in the show notes and i thought it was fascinating harry but my, my question for you is i wonder what's the best cpd you've ever had and crucially what made it so good um yeah so i had to weigh up between uh dylan william and doug lemov uh for this oh jeez how are you um, gonna choose between i know, these? but i think <laughs> i think i'm gonna go for, for doug lemov um because it, in some ways that's influenced me more and i've been lucky enough to go to, to three or four of the courses that that they do um the most profound thing for me was was 
you practice you stand up and you do the things that it, you think you want to do in the classroom um and so i after i went to the first one i came back into the classroom in in britain and i was like I, I was standing there and I was feeling myself do a thing which I tried to do outside the classroom. So I've yes. been like teed up so that I knew what I was doing. I knew where it could go wrong. So I think that's that's one really powerful feature. It's meticulously designed, like down to the minute, incredibly careful, very carefully structured. Um, and so I took took a lot from that. And at the same time, they're really responsive to what's going on in the room. They change. They're, they're usually a two day uh, course and they look at the first thing they do at the end of the day is they fire through 100 plus exit tickets and work out what is it they need to change for the next day um and then the other thing is it, it's fun like it's it's carefully done to be enjoyable to be a supportive environment i totally get that loads of teachers feel uncomfortable like getting into role play they might have experienced poor role play they might just not want to show themselves as vulnerable uh in front of their peers the way doug lemov and the teach like a champion team do it they make it like irresistible that sounds that sounds great I, I mean i've got to get myself along to one of these i was uh, one of my favorite ever interviews on this podcast was with doug and one thing i took away from it harry and i've tried to incorporate this both into the cpd that i'm lucky enough to to deliver to teachers and also in, in my book is the idea of name it see it do it i think that's the yeah. right order but but giving things a name and it sounds so stupid but it's so important right because if, if you come away from a course and somebody says oh what did you learn and you, you try and describe it it can be really difficult but if you can say ah oh, show call or plan for error or if it's got a catchy name that you can summarize it's just it's just easy for you to remember or chunk or, or, or whatever the mechanism is and i think just naming something see it in an action and then actually doing it it's such a simple three-stage process but i can count on one hand the amount of cpd that actually meets each of those three requirements that i've been to so i always try and shape my cpd that i give around that if that makes sense yeah and i think the, the interesting thing about that is that it, it's really similar to what we were talking about earlier in terms of modeling and working with our students right show yes. them what it is and doug lemon will always show you like two or three multiple models name it to like pull out what are the features of this how do we term them and then give people the chance to practice them because one of the drums that i keep beating is um teacher learning it, it, it's just learning right it's the same as student learning it's the same processes you might be trying to learn something different you might be uh, in a slightly different scenario but you still need the same kind of experiences to pick something up yeah great great advice harry and um, final question from me before i hand over to you for your big three and that's just kind of looking back now on, on all you've learned all the experiences you've had i wonder what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now so my, my first answer to this would be the novice expert thing but since we've talked about that quite a lot i'll say another thing that, that i wish i'd known and i think now is probably a good time to apologize to my students that i, I didn't know it which is, <laughs> um you can guide your students and you can exercise leadership and you can challenge them without oppressing them. And I think one of the things that I went into the classroom trying to do was like create this completely democratic, egalitarian environment. Um, I th like democracies are a messy thing uh, and 11 year old children aren't necessarily ready to run their own classroom. Um, and I think I, like, I wish I'd taken more responsibility as a teacher and been more careful and intentional about what I was trying to do. And I think they'd have got a lot more out of that. That's very, very sound advice. And it's it's just experience that teaches you that, doesn't it, Harry? It's, it's difficult to get that right from, from day one. Would you, would you agree? 
Yeah, I mean, as as someone who spends most of my time as a teacher educator, I have to say no because like I, <laughs> I, 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 we have to find ways to shortcut this learning process. True. But yeah, I think like my 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 worst fear is that after uh, like twenty years of doing one thing, I'm going to come to the to the like conclusion that I was completely misguided, but I was yes. only able to work that out through twenty years. Uh, experience and that's one of the reasons why I read so much and I try and like talk to a lot of people visit a lot of schools because I don't want to miss out on on that kind of thing but for how you teach that to to new teachers I do not yet have uh, a good answer (laughs) fantastic well we come to the part of the show now where I hand over to you Harry for your big three but but before I do and just a little fact for you I don't know if you're aware of this um you're actually the most uh, referenced person in this big three section so out of all the guests I've had on the show I think at least five have cited either your blog or your twitter uh, in particular your twitter research summaries within their big three so uh, you're a regular feature in this section but now it's it's finally time for your for your go so I wonder Harry what three either websites or blog posts would you like to direct our listeners to and I'll put links to these in the show notes fantastic okay so I've gone a little bit left field because I was just going <laughs> to go nice. for things that I thought your listeners might not have come across before. And the first one is um, Robert Slavin's blog, um, who uh, works at, I think it's called the Institute for Effective Education. Hopefully you can correct that on the podcast if I'm wrong. Um, but this is a guy who's been working in educational research for, for, for decades. And he writes just like an interesting re- reflection on the state of current research, what we're finding out. Uh, what we're not finding out, how particularly U.S. government policy is working. So I always find that find that really interesting. Is he the guy, Harry? Is he the guy who does the uh, analysis of effective group work, or is it yes, different? Yes, he is. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Oh, I'll check that out. Now I've not come across that. It's an excellent opening choice. What, what, what about your next two? Um, so I've, I've already confessed uh, a real interest in behavioural psychology, and I'm signed up to the Behavioural Insights Team blog, um, and so they. Uh, it, it, it's sort of sporadic. Sometimes you'll get lots of things at once. Sometimes it might go quiet for a month or two. Really varied. Some of it's in education. Some of it's really interesting. Um, some of it's in health, in crime. Um, but fundamentally, what they're about is is trying to make um, public services smarter uh, and try and make it easier for, for people to to live better, whether at suffering less crime, making healthier choices. Um, And it always really makes me think about uh, both my own work and the work that we do with students. Fantastic. And and what about number three? Can I cheat and give you a a Twitter person instead? Of course. Of Um, course you can. So uh, Rue Stenning is is, uh, a very interesting uh, teacher based in Southeast Asia. And for as long as I've been on Twitter, has been sharing fascinating stuff that he reads um really interesting guy loads of great resources that he shares and he's very good at being like oh here's the unpaywalled version of this paper that everyone's looking for <laughs> so uh, I've, I've benefited hugely from from that and what's his name again sorry uh, rue stenning I'll, I'll send you the link That'll be great. Fantastic. Well, Harry, we've we've reached the end of the interview and just time to say just thank you to you for, for two for two reasons, actually. Firstly, for, for giving up your time to be on the podcast. I, I've had absolutely wonderful time talking to you. But also, um, I've, I've only been lucky enough to, to meet you in person once. and I didn't get a chance to tell you this in, in Blackpool. But whenever I um, first started up diagnostic questions, probably God, about five, six years ago now, um, I was first inspired by a course run by Dylan William where I came across the, the concept of it. And then I, I pitched it to my my friend Simon and he did all the kind of tech side building and I I went about writing questions writing maths questions 
and then I came across your work um, via your blog and via Twitter and the thought that you'd put into what makes a good question, what makes a poor question, even though you weren't looking at math specific ones, it really got me thinking and I reckon it fast tracked my question writing ability by about two or three years. It just, it really got me thinking deeper about what makes a good question and I'll be eternally grateful for, for that, Harry. So thank you for appearing on the show. Thank you for helping me uh, write hopefully better questions. Uh, your book's absolutely superb. Um, it's, it's a wonderful book and just thank you for talking me, talking to me today it's been absolutely fascinating it's been great to be pushed on all these things uh, and it's been a real pleasure thank you so much so there you have it there was my interview with Harry Fletcher Wood. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. As I said in my intro, it genuinely was one of my favourite ever interviews. I know you probably shouldn't have favourites, but I'll be honest, that was one of them. Um, I just found Harry just fascinating to talk to. He's got such a great mind. Um, his book is absolutely wonderful. He's brilliant to follow on Twitter. His blog is amazing as well. Um, and I was thinking, what, what can I reflect upon on these on these takeaways? And I've decided to choose two things. The first one makes me look particularly bad, but hopefully I'll bring it back with the second one. Um, the first is the whole idea of cross-curricular training or cross-curricular books, books that don't focus on the subject that we teach. And as I say in the introduction of my own book, I think us maths teachers are a little bit funny with stuff like this, or at least <clears throat> I know one maths teacher is, and, and that's me. And that's any time I go into some generic cross-curricular training at school, immediately my kind of defense mechanisms are up and immediately I'm, I'm, I'm on alert for things that I can kind of say to myself, well, that's not applicable to maths and then I can just switch off. So whenever um, a history colleague or an English colleague or a geography colleague or even a science colleague um, stands up and shares a strategy or something that's worked in their lessons, immediately I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's fine, but how's that gonna help me factorize a quadratic more effectively or teach the, the intricacies of angles on a parallel line? And I know that makes me look terrible, but, but that's how I've felt for, for quite a few years. And that's particularly the case, I think, because in many subjects, require students to, to write for extended periods and obviously in, in subjects like English that's the case but also in, in geography you have um, long essay questions even in science you, you have some kind of extended response questions and a lot of, of training particularly in terms of marking and feedback and modeling and so on um, tends to focus on, on that side of things. And I always used to think to myself well, well that's not applicable to, to maths, we're special, we're, we're kind of above all that. But I think kind of two things changed my mind really um, on this. Uh, the first was when I got obsessed with research um, when I was um, speaking to people on the podcast and, and um, researching for my book. <clears throat> and within research, you tend to find general principles, like a lot of Bjork's work um, on desirable difficulties and memory and a lot of Sweller's work on, on cognitive load theory is based around general principles. So you get a general principle and then my instinct then was to go and dig for, for subject specific things. And, and you couldn't often find them, sometimes you could, and whenever I couldn't, I, I would then have to do some work myself, really actively thinking, how can I make this work for, for my math students, for, for teaching um, the subject that I love? And with a bit of thought, you what you often can, and I'm gonna dig deeper into, into some specific examples in a second. But then, so research was kind of the catalyst for this, and then, um, 
I've, I've read loads of books of late um, and there's just been some, as I said to, to Harry on, in the interview, it's been an absolute golden period, I think, for, for maths blogs and, sorry, for blogs, education blogs in general, and also books. There's some absolutely wonderful ones out there. And I now read books with a, with a much more open mind. So take something like Harry's book, which is kind of based in general principles. It's really nicely structured, by the way. It's based in general principles, but then you hear... Um, kind of in the words of a teacher who's wrestling with this research, wrestling with problems, trying it out, failing, tweaking it. And I'm trying to read those books now with a, with a much more open mind. So whenever the teacher, um, and it alternates from chapter to chapter, if it's a science teacher we're hearing from in Harry's book, then immediately, instead of kind of closing my mind off, I'm trying to think, okay, well, how can I actually make this work for maths? And as I say, I'm going to reflect on something specific um, in a second. So I, I read books with much more open mind. And then it made me reflect as well um, on the question I asked Harry that what was his best ever training that he had? And I started thinking, what was my best ever training, best ever CPD session I went to? And I'm very, very lucky. I've been to most of the maths conferences. I've been to loads of incredible subject-specific training that have changed my practice beyond all doubt. But best ever training I went to was, was by Dylan William on formative assessment. And I was in a room with about 150 uh, teachers, primary school teachers, secondary school teachers, English teachers, history teachers, geography teachers, and so on. And yet it was the best training I had ever been on because, I think it was because Dylan firstly showed examples from lots of different subjects, but also got us thinking, how can this work in our subject? And I think that's the kind of question you've, you've got to ask, or certainly I've got to ask myself. I've got to open my mind up when I'm reading things, when I'm listening to things, and I've got to be thinking to myself, how can I make this work in my subject? And not in a negative way, not in how on earth is this going to work in maths? But how can I, what can I take from this? What can I tweak from this? What can I modify and adapt to make this work in my subject? So that is one thing I'm going to do going forward. I'm going to read, I'm going to read books by English teachers, even books specifically on English, because there's a wealth of knowledge out there. And I've been, I've had a closed mind for too long, but, but no longer, but no longer. So what can I take from Harry's book that, that um, to dig deeper into some of the things that we discussed in the interview that's specific to maths teachers? Well, there's two things uh, re that really, really stood out um, for me. And they're both discussed by uh, Michael Pershing. And I've got to get Mike um, on the show. I, I have to. I'm a massive follower of him um, on Twitter. He comes out with some amazing things. Um, and I'm probably not going to do his ideas justice here. But I just want to talk one briefly and then one in a little bit more detail. Um, the first is it, proof, and I, I discussed this with Harry. Um, I think proof, and whenever you answer kind of five or six less structured, five or six mark less structured questions, that's as close as we as math teachers get to the challenges that English teachers, history, and geography teachers get um, in terms of um, long form uh, responses to questions, kind of mini essay questions or paragraphs, and so on. Because you need you need a tight structure, you need a logical um, reasoning, and it needs to be easy to understand and follow for the person who's looking at it. And we've all marked papers, and um, we've all marked five or six mark questions that have been a flipping nightmare to mark because you've just got numbers floating around left, right, and centre. And when you're trying to mark it, you're looking around thinking, "Where's that three quarters come from? What on earth is that 0 0.2 that's randomly floating around in a bubble on the right of the page?" And some answers are an absolute nightmare to mark. So um, there's a great bit in Harry's book where, where Michael Pershing talks about how he um, uses um, 
examples of good proofs. So show students proofs that are good, proofs that are not so good, um, and kind of compares them so they, they see what quality looks like. Just as an English teacher would show an essay to show what excellence looks like, we can actually do this with, with longer, longer form answers to show what excellence looks like, show that structure. And there's a lovely part in, in Harry's book that, that goes into that. Um, so all the sections when I, when I start reading about essays and things like that, now I'm gonna be thinking, how can I relate that to the longer form answers that, that our math students have to do? So I won't discuss that anymore because I talked about it in the interview and you can, you can follow that up in Harry's book. But the second thing is also by M Michael Pershing. And this for me is a bit of a game changer. If you listen to my interview with Ollie Lovell, which I'd highly, highly recommend, there was a real game changer that came out from that interview and in terms of the principles of what I do when I give kids tests back that I've marked, get them to take a bit more ownership over those mistakes and turn them into a highly effective revision and testing strategy. And this is another one for me from Michael Persian via Harry's book. And that is how Michael does feedback. And I just, it's so flipping simple, but I just think this is absolutely wonderful. So for each error uh, Michael finds, what he does when he's marking is he writes an example that's related, but not identical to the original problem. So you can imagine if you've set your kids 10 questions uh, to answer for homework, and what you see there is perhaps um, across the class, actually, um, some kids have answered um, collectively about eight of those questions wrong at some stage. Or maybe it's even all 10. So what Michael does is he, he will write in the first instance, let's say, eight examples um, that are similar but not identical to those original problems. They put on a sheet, um, and uh, although this isn't stated explicitly, I would imagine that they're actually, the order that they're put on the sheet is, is mixed up. So it's not in the same order that they would appear on the actual homework itself. So question three on the homework does not correspond to question three on the sheet that, that, that Michael produces. Now here's the interesting thing. Every student then gets given this same sheet, and their job is to find an example related to a question that they struggled with, follow through this example that Michael's done um, on the sheet and then use that to correct their work. So what they're essentially getting is a sheet full of worked examples to questions that are related to ones in their homework. But it's not just the case that, uh, and this is a mistake I think I've made in the past, where I will correct somebody's um, work by showing them in their book how they do it and then giving them a related question to do. It's, it's almost too easy, it cuts the thinking out. Whereas if they're having to take that extra step, say, okay, I've got question seven wrong. Let me have a look on this sheet now. What, what Can I see a question that's similar to question seven? Why is it similar? Okay, there's one that looks similar. Now let me follow that one through. Okay, I think I follow the steps there from that worked example. Now back to my one. Where did I go wrong and how can I use that to correct it? And for me, this is a, a simple twist, but a really important one on the practice that I used to do, which was to go through every individual kid's book, correct every individual mistake or give hints on every individual mistake and then set follow-up work. And it's an improvement on that for two reasons. One, that first one took flipping ages, absolutely flipping ages. And two, as I mentioned, I don't think it made the kids think as much because I almost was giving too much feedback. I was, it was, it's a classic thing. It was more work for me, exponentially more work for me than it was for the kids. But what this does for Michael, firstly, it saves time because all you're doing is you're writing, let's say eight or seven, 
whatever, questions with a worked example how to go through it. You're just doing that once on a single sheet. Every kid's getting that same single sheet. So it's far less work, but it's more effective as well because kids have then got worked examples to, to study. You probably put a bit more thought into those questions and how you set out those worked examples than you would do if you were doing this in 30 different books. Because I know by the time I get to book 27, I am knackered. My writing is bad at the best of times, but it's gone absolutely rubbish by the time I'm at number 27. It's hard to read and so on. Whereas if I'm just producing a sheet like this, Lots of thought can go into this. Kids have then, <coughs> excuse me, kids have then got something to revise from, a nice little uh, worked example that they can take, they can uh, keep with them. You can save these, take a scan of them, take a photo of them or whatever. It builds up something that then you can use later on in the year. So you've then got a collection of all questions kids have struggled with on homework. So at the end of the year, when you're revising or whatever, you can use these to produce low stakes quizzes or starter questions or whatever. And I just thought that was such a simple, nice idea. And there's kind of a hybrid of this that, that I've dabbled with in the past, but I think Michael's idea is better than this. And the hybrid is where you do something similar. You would write kind of three or four follow-up questions and you would say, you would indicate in kid's book which follow-up question they were to do. So you would say, kids got a question wrong. So you'd say, do follow-up question three. You've got this question wrong, do follow-up question five. And then project those follow-up questions on the board for when kids go in. But again, I like Michael's idea better because because you're actually putting the ownership on the kids to discover which, which works example is going to help them correct their mistake. It gets them thinking. It gets them thinking harder. And I just thought that was a wonderful idea. So as I say, um, I hope that made some kind of sense. It's dug into um, deeper um, in Harry's book. And, and Michael's written a blog post on this that I will link to in the show notes. And hopefully I'm going to get him on the podcast because I just, uh, I've got a feeling that it's just going to be an absolute goldmine of, of absolute ideas. So there were my uh, takeaways. All that's left for me to do is, is a few thanks. So firstly, and most importantly, thanks so much to Harry for taking the time to, to speak to me. I, I just absolutely love that conversation. Um, thank you to AQA, our first ever sponsors. Check out Beautiful Maths. I think it's a, a very worthwhile campaign there. And as I say, if you're interested in, in having a sponsor segment on the show, just get in touch, mrbartonmaths at gmail.com. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And also some brand new music there in the, in the sponsor segment. And a massive, massive, massive thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping listening to these, to spreading the word, to saying that it's CPD on the move, to telling me on Twitter how it's changing your practice, how you're enjoying it and so on. It, it, honestly, I can't tell you how much this means to me. Um, if you get a chance to leave a review on iTunes, um, that would be amazing. But just thank you for keeping on listening. And I have got some incredible guests lined up for the future. I can't wait to share them with you. But you take care of yourselves and bye for now.